Welcome to the Strength Culture Podcast. All right, guys. Welcome. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, today I have a guest. His name is Aaron Edgley. He's out of Canada. Aaron is a athlete and a coach. Um, and Aaron and I have gone back and forth a little bit on Instagram and we decided to have this podcast because we realized that within our conversation, we probably had a lot of good things that we could talk about that I think would probably be crucial and beneficial for a lot of you guys to hear. Um, you know, so Aaron, I just want to say, welcome. Thanks for spending, uh, your Friday with me here on the podcast. Yeah, I appreciate it. I, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to to speak to you, man, and your audience. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I think this is going to be a really good conversation just from, you know, some of the brief interaction that we have had on Instagram. Um, some of your accolades, which we'll go into, and some of your achievements, both as an athlete, as a coach, I definitely would love to get into today. Um, I think that it's going to be a really cool story, both just from the physical feats themselves, but more so the mental aspect of how you handle these things and how you do these things. Um, and even more so the message behind why you do these things, I think are probably more crucial now, uh, in these times than ever. Um, you know, you know, me, obviously you have been following me for some time. Um, I'm not afraid to just speak my mind. And so today I think this is going to be a really good podcast, a very real podcast, uh, where we can address some just kind of conversation back and forth, training, life mindset, a bunch of different things. So again, welcome Aaron. Why don't you tell everybody who you are and, and how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, for sure. No, that was a great intro. I appreciate it. So I would say I could probably start you know, the start of my career. So it all started with me watching Lane Norton's training video logs where he would post all of his sets and reps for his powerlifting. And this is when Lane Norton was, I think it was 2014 when he was one of the best guys in the world in powerlifting for his weight class. And he was programmed by a guy named Ben Escrow. And so one thing that I would do is I couldn't afford coaching. I was working a minimum wage job at a Starbucks, barely getting by. So I realized that in order for me to become a better powerlifter, I got to learn how to do these programs for myself. So I would actually spend all my nights writing every set rep uh, intensity to Lane Norton's current one rep max in a notebook. And I would study the patterns and the programming to it. And I got pretty obsessed with it. So I started doing my own programming. So I was running, I was a guinea pig. I was running everything. I think the worst example I have is I was deadlifting four times a week. I was doing six doubles. This is not made up. I was doing six doubles at 85% and the next day doing six singles at 90%. By the way, I would never coach this. I'd never recommend it. But again, I was just the guinea pig of trying everything. So based on that, I actually just started as for fun programming for a couple of my friends. And one of them went from a 315 bench to a 405 bench while losing 25 pounds. His name is Braden Warwick. And they got some really good success. And very interestingly enough, Braden Warwick at the time, while he was getting his PhD in engineering, was training all the time. And he was the strongest person at Queens University, which is like, you know, one of the higher prestige schools that uh, in Canada, that's in the city that I live in, in Kingston. And one day he said, there's actually someone stronger than me. And I said, no, there's no way. And he's like, yeah. And he's 18. And I was wow. like, I was like, what? 
So one day at the gym, his name is Jordan Donato. We had no idea that this was Braden did this. Uh, and this, this moment, I think is the pivotal moment that made all of this happen. So we're at the gym and this kid was, he squatted, he was squatting 585 for singles. Um, so six plates on, and he was only 18 years old. And Braden was like, Hey Jordan, this is Aaron. And he's, you know, been doing some programming for me, yada, yada, yada. And at this time I wasn't known as a coach or anything like that. And he's like, I, th- I think your training could get to the next level if you guys work together. And Jordan, I was like, Oh, Jordan, what's your lifts? And he goes, well, my bench is 315. My deadlift is 655 and my squats 585. And the, the sentence that I said is the reason why he hired me over any big name coach at the time. I said, Oh, that's not bad. But he's so used to getting, <laughs> right? Like, Oh, you're the next superstar in the sport, yada, yada, yada. So he hired me. Um, and through coaching him and Braden, a couple other athletes, they're freaks, right? So if you're at a university gym and you see this guy pulling, you know, six plates for reps, people reach out. And my business kind of started growing a bit in that way. So we went to some local meets. We won those. We went to some provincial meets. We, you know, came second or runner up and did pretty well. In uh, 2019 at provincials, we went in there with the goal of breaking the national deadlift record in his weight class. And we went in there and we did. It was one of the coolest experiences ever. And that was, I think, one of the biggest moments where I proved that I could do this at a pretty high level. And people started realizing, like, I got, I probably got some goods to offer them. And then in 2020, so this, so March 2020, we went to nationals and we won the national championship. So that was the big breakthrough moment in my career, right? Is that, you know, winning the national championship, qualifying to be a coach at Worlds, that was the big one. And we were up against a dog that day and it was, it came down to the very wire and we were actually down, uh, you're in America. So down 60 pounds going into deadlifts that we had to make up and we won that. And the person that handled the other athlete is actually my mentor, which is cool. And he's like the best coach in the world, in my opinion. So it was like a really cool experience for us. So that's kind of how I made waves. And then people started reaching out to me and for, I never had a marketing plan. It was always results. And that's my plan. And then after that internship, long story short, Jason Trombley, the owner of Strength Guys, him and Ben Escrow, back to like the Lane Norton side of it, uh, are, are were coaching together at the same time. And I went up to Jason. I actually told him the original story about me writing all that stuff down from Ben. Two days later, they they asked me to hop on a call with them. So I'm on a call with you know one of my idols, and then Jason, one of the best coaches in the world, and they offered me an internship with them. So wow. I got to spend, I had a successful internship for over 150 hours with some of the best coaches in the world. Jason is uh, a 16 time national champion, a three time world champion. He coaches Taylor Atwood, who's okay. the number one, he's the number one lifter in the world right now. Uh, and he has the second biggest Wilkes in tested powerlifting history of all time. So I got full access to his training, for an example, um, and I got to work with them as well. So that really helped me as well. And that's kind of how I got here. I started my business. I call it the Edgley Strength Training Systems, but my team really prefers the team Edgley. They really like being a part of that team. So for an example, we have a big group chat where we have world-class national level athletes and also novice in the same group chat. So everyone communicates, there's no ego, right? So like I can have a guy who's benching 225, he can DM or message the group and then someone like Jordan will respond, you know? So it's a really cool environment. Uh, and that's how I got here today. And then 
Currently, right now, as a coach, I well, I won the provincial championship and national championship as a coach. I currently have one of the best junior deadlifters in Canada, squatters in Canada, and benchers in Canada. I have a guy who's 19 right now who's squatting. He's going to go into his me. He's going to squat around 620 pounds in the 90, uh, and he weighs 200 pounds. Wow. Uh, I have another guy who's 21 who is benching 450 pounds and he's 200 pounds body weight. Um, so again, I'm not the best coach by any means, but I do like to share that because I do have, as we've talked about, I think it's important to share that we've actually, we do have results before we just talk about, you know, the training principles. And then the second side note as an athlete, I'm a retired average power lifter. I was never very good at it. And I found out quickly that I'm actually pretty decent at the endurance sports. So that's quite a transition. Quite the transition. And and the story of it's kind of funny. And so I went through a very, very lowest patch of my life uh, a couple of years ago, three years ago now. Uh, lost my job, girlfriend left me, all this stuff, right? And I remember on a terrible experience, we went to this, like we hiked together way after we broke up. And she and I was just joking. And I said, I could run a marathon tomorrow with my mindset. And she's kind of laughed at me. And I tried to put too much value into it, but I got to be honest that that was something that definitely motivated me. And I texted Jordan the next day, I'm going to run a marathon. I found one eight weeks away. And he's oh like, kind of like, he's kind of like kind of shrugged it off. So I did eight runs of my entire life. I never ran. I'm not a runner. Uh, I hopped in a marathon. I ran it in four eleven, which isn't super impressive time by any for marathon standards. Uh, I couldn't walk for a couple of weeks um, after, but we got it done. And then since then I got into the endurance side. And then the biggest thing I'm actually known for though, is the pull-ups. So at the time I was doing, you know, just a hundred to 200 pull-ups, almost honestly on a daily basis. And I oh saw God. David Dobson's on the Joe Rogan podcast, talk about the world record of 4,100. And I went in this rabbit hole. I ended up finding it. The guy named John Orth has the 24 hour world record. And he was in an interview saying that people that can do hundred to 200 pull-ups a day are in that range are pretty damn good. So I didn't even realize it. So then I started going down a rabbit hole of world records and training. I took so I went off and went crazy on this. So I, I ended up breaking a world or sorry, setting a world record last November where I did two back-to-back marathons and 1500 pull-ups in 20 hours. I now have five world's first feats. My favorite performance I've ever done as an athlete, even better than the world record, just based on my own performance is I did 2000 pull-ups and a half marathon in nine hours. So it worked out to doing just around six pull-ups on the minute for seven hours straight. And then I literally threw my sh- like threw my running shoes on and then just started running the half marathon. And my average pace was, I guess in miles, it would have been around like 840 a mile. So that was kind of where I was at. And then I'm I've my marathon and all half marathon times aren't great, that great. I'm not like this most you know speedy guy, but I've learned and my greatest expertise other than powerlifting coaching is the mindset. And I've been able to, and this is the things that people ask me questions on the most. And what I write about and speak about is the mental training that I've done. And I'm happy to share some stories because I realize that I realize I'm not special, but I understand that I'm unique. And some of the things that I've done to my mind and my body and regular training is not very common. So I've been able to develop my mind to be able to withstand some crazy things. So in the, at the 53 K mark, during my world record attempt, I actually fractured my big toe. I took my shoe off and was super swollen. And one of my handlers and best friends is a really high level wrestling coach. And he's like, you got to keep the shoe on. It'll swell. And my best friend, Jared, it was funny. He says, 
He said at the pit stop, he goes, he yells at me. He goes, you don't need your big toe to run. Just use your heel. So I basically just kept running. And after about uh, two miles, it just went numb. And then early, and then I actually, three, 300 pull-ups in. I didn't realize this because when you're running, right, your arms are here. So I didn't realize about running for that long. My arms actually started getting a little bit fatigued. So when I started doing pull-ups, I actually got a tear in my right forearm as well. So I was able to grind through that. So I just want to speak on those experiences and things I've done just because I like to preface things that when I do speak on the mental training side of things or powerlifting that I do have experience and proven results through kind of my process and methodologies. So yeah, that's kind of a quick overview of my life and how I got to where I am today. I mean, that's a pretty impressive story. I mean, first, okay. A couple of things to, to point out. Okay. One is the fact that you kept such diligent training logs and, and analyzed training logs so much as to try and understand a certain pattern. Right. Um, cause like I talk to most people these days and they don't maintain any sort of training logs. Um, I have an online business, you know, I get like a 30%, um, rate at which people, you know, even plug their workouts or whatever. So people have, don't, most people aren't tracking metrics by any standards, right? They just kind of go in the gym and hope they lift more weight, which can be okay for some, but for most, it's like, you have nothing to compare it to. You have no data. You don't, you don't know if you're, if you're getting better, if you're not getting better, especially in my experience, when you're training hard, it, it always feels hard. It always feels, or I will say at least majority of the time, it doesn't feel like you're making progress. And then you look back at your logs and you go, Oh wow. Like I'm actually making a, you know, a decent amount of progress. So it, it can be very motivating to keep logs. Um, and so the fact that you go in and you just analyze somebody else's logs to try to figure out a pattern. And then you just did some quick math to basically get it to fit your numbers is, is impressive. And then, you know, to go from that already the, the quality of just confidence, right. To how you find your way to training high level lifters, power lifters, just almost through pure confidence. Obviously you have some experience by this point, but I mean, the fact that you didn't just like blow smoke up this guy's ass, right. He was, cause like you said, this guy's probably so used to people doing that all the time. So when he gets kind of an opposite reaction, it's going to, it's going to peak some sort of some sort of interest, almost like there's this game, right? Like, if, Oh, like this guy doesn't think I'm impressive. Like I'm going to prove him wrong, you know? Um, and then you just built your way up from that, which, you know, in, in the world of, of degrees and, and college and all these things. And then of course there's validity to these things in certain contexts and times. Right. But so much emphasis is placed on going to school and reading some books and getting some lectures from some guy who probably hasn't been involved in what he's talking about in decades. And this idea that hands-on applicable, applying information and data and making it applicable to real life and actually getting in the trenches and, and getting the work done seems to be so undervalued anymore that it almost tipped its head. You know, I, like in the United States, this is a, this is a nation, this is a country that was built on blue collar work, just get in the trenches, get your hands dirty, work hard, show up every day, do this, do it again, you know, to this idea of theoretical knowledge being valued without any sort of proof 
or practical application that you can actually take words from a book and make them happen and work in real life, right? And it's one of the biggest barriers as a coach and in working with other coaches, especially young ones over the years, is that a lot of them graduate from college and they think they know everything and they have no experience. And more times than not, I rather, I will take somebody who just gets in there and gets the work done over any sort of degree or certification or anything. Cause I feel just from my experience, it has so much more to teach us. Again, it's, it's not to say that the other is not valuable because of course an education is valuable, right? But an education isn't worth shit if you don't know what to do with it. Um, so that's, that's already pretty wild. And then you make a transition, you know, whether you consider yourself average or not, you make yourself, you make a transition from a strength athlete, a power athlete to an endurance athlete. And, you know, I don't care if you don't, you're not breaking world records and marathons and stuff, you know, but the fact that you go from powerlifting to running marathons and even completing a marathon, because like I told you before we started this call, it's not even something I remotely have interest in. And maybe that'll change one day, who knows, because maybe I'll get the same attitude as you and just say, fuck it. Like, I just want to prove that I can do it. You know what I mean? Which I find that a lot of people who do their first marathon, that, that really is the challenge. You know, it's really just proving to yourself that you can do it. But I liked, I liked the motivating piece as men, a lot of things, a lot of, a lot of motivating factors in our life typically, uh, come from women, <laughs> whether it could be bad or good, whether it's constructive or destructive, right. It's like, oh, that's how she feels or, you know, or, or you try to impress her or, or whatever. Right. So, you know, I think that these are very real just points because so many people are going to relate to that, you know, is, is, and, uh, and then how the outlets that you chose to get through these things, right. Which I think is, is pretty incredible. So when you sent me that video, this was just back in November, right? So this wasn't even, this was just four or five months ago that you did this yeah. double marathon, right? So did you do, I know that you said for the first marathon that you run, you didn't really do any training. Did you do any training for this? Oh yeah. I've been training after my first marathon. I realized that I, I love that process so much that I've been, I've been training hard ever since. I ended up, uh, I hopped into a marathon. It's called that damn hill in September. So with COVID and all the races shutting down, it's so hard to find anywhere to run uh, a race in uh, Ontario. So I actually found one near Toronto that, that was open. And it's kind of funny because that's actually where I ran my first original marathon. And, and what, so, not to inter- what year did you run your first marathon? Uh, that would have been 2019. In September okay. 2019. So then September, so in February, 2020, oh, no, 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 18, 2018, my bad. Sorry, sorry, okay. sorry. And then February, 2019, I hopped into what's called Canada's hardest um, road marathon because it's in Ottawa, which is a terribly cold city and it's in the middle of February. So it's <laughs> ice and rainy and I end up finishing first in my age division and I think 11th overall for the half marathon. Wow. And then that, so then in the September, when I ran the half, I came third overall out of everybody out of like 150 half marathoners. And that damn hill is called that because at the very end, before you go to this flat, it's a loop. So it's only, a, it's a, it's um, a 1.2 mile loop that you're just running. And, okay. you're, and then there's uh 400 meters that is just pretty much an in, a complete incline. 
and then it goes flat again. So you're just, you know what I mean? So I came third there. And then I actually, the week after that, I got back into training, I actually banged up my knee. So I actually said this on one podcast, but when I did the phone call with the charities that wanted to do this event, they asked me about my training for this attempt. And I said, oh, like I'm training hard. I'm good. But at the time when I actually had that phone call, I wasn't training at all because I had a knee injury. So I, and all, and I always tell people this is that all my training is on Strava and I follow a couple really amazing athletes like Des Linden. I don't know if you probably know that name, the show on the Boston marathon. Yeah. She's an Olympic level athlete, but she shares all of her kilometers, all of her heart rate, everything. So I've been inspired to do the same. And if you look at my training logs, I only ran seven kilometers and then I, the one week, and then I only trained training camp for five weeks before that attempt. Um, so my big thing on that is that I'm so into the mind and believing that we're, you know, I can't jump off a high skyscraper that a parachute and survive, but I think I can, we can all do a lot more by building our minds. So I've always wanted to like prove that to my athletes and other people as well. But yeah, that was a crazy transition. Uh, it was definitely a wild experience. And yeah, it was only like four or five months ago that I did that. So it's been, um, it's definitely gained some traction for sure. And people are like, who the hell is this guy from like Kingston? Who's like, you know, setting these records and doing all this crazy stuff, but it's been a good experience. Just an average guy, as it says on your Instagram, right? Yeah. The reason is, is that, and why I put that right is, is it's interesting because I definitely get like a lot of like my friends and family, like kind of chirp me about it. Um, and the reason why is because I actually don't have an athletic background growing up. Right. So I didn't like, I mean, I played basketball at the park with my boys, but I never made a team sport. I tried it a few times. I got cut. Uh, you know, my, if you look at my genetics and metrics, like they're pretty average and I work with talent, like high level guys. Like I know this sport very well and athletes, I'm just not that guy. So I like to say, I like to always say that I'm average because I truly believe in my heart and soul that I got to where I am through building my mind first. And it gives me chills actually just saying it, but like, I can't even like the soul crushing work and, and I can get into some of the training sessions that I've done. And what I put my mind and my body through is it, I can get emotional even just thinking about it, but it's gotten me to where I am today where I can now. So I'm now going like in November, I'm going to be at the JFK 50 miler. So that is like the third biggest ultra marathon race in America or North America. And I'm actually, based on my projected time, I'll be in the first 100 people uh, that are taking off the start line. So in that group, I'm not going to be with them. They're going to beat me by like two hours, but don't get me wrong. But you're going to have guys like Jim Walmsley and like professional runners that are going to be in that wave. And I'm just some fucking guy from Kingston, man, some random kid. So uh, I like to say the average side, just because I think a lot of people resonate with my story because they're like, oh shit, if he can do it, maybe like I can put in the work, you know, and, right. and get there, you know? Yeah, I think it's a good message because, you know, with there's, there's a lot of things going on here, right? And as much as we use the platform because it can be super beneficial, social media does have downsides. And what happens on social media is you always see the best of people. And, you, and for the most part, you always see where people are now. And sometimes even that can be faked or pretended, right? So what it does is it creates this skewed sort of reality for people and their expectations of how to accomplish things and what it really takes to accomplish things. Because 
it's, it's not an overnight thing. And if we're just being really honest, you know, in my opinion, I look, I've worked with, I guess you could say gifted athletes, genetic outliers to some degree, but that's never going to be enough. And what I found is that average people with good work ethic and some sort of stable moral foundational principles in which they operate on will generally always outwork anybody with genetics. And the second people with good genetics or whatever you want to say, start to sense or, or realize that somebody who may not be as gifted at them has a very good potential at being better than them, just purely based off their work ethic. Very few of them actually drive up their work ethic. They just kind of give up because things have come and come so easy to them that when it really comes time to put in work, they just kind of fall off. You know, of course there's, there's outliers, right? Like LeBron James, obviously gifted on, on every level. He was born to play basketball, also a very hard worker, right? So I think like the great, that's what separates the great of the greats versus just like pro pros, right? Because a lot of individuals just get there based on that. Um, but I really think like the average guy, I, I, I'm considering myself very average as well, right? I'm just obsessed with things and I study hard and I'm not willing to try. I'm not, I am willing to try things. I'm not afraid to fail trying things, you know? And I think that a hundred percent, the mindset thing resonates with me because it's so much of who you are and where you're going to be and even who you've been. And more often than not, that's always going to be people's barriers. And, and just as a, just since we are both doing, you know, this thing in the realm of fitness, like we know how quickly the mind gives up before the body gives up. I mean, there's just so many stories about these things that like we, for the most part, we understand what that's like. Right. And it's, it's, it's as simple as, you know, just squatting for instance, right? Like the more confidence you get under that bar with the better your chances are you're coming up with that, that weight. If your confidence is lacking, if the mental game isn't there, if you feel scared or afraid or, you know, chances are it's going to go the other way. So the, the body can probably do it either way. It's just you giving up. And of course I've had several coaches, same thing, Olympic coaches and things. And, and they've, they've, you know, expounded on this sentiment time and time again with, with athletes and given plenty of examples. But I think it's a good message because people can absolutely do so much more than what they are doing. You know, and so many people are living a life right now that's just so incomplete. And uh, yeah, I'm ex I'm excited just to see how deep this thing goes because this it's I've not really had a podcast like this. You know, I, a lot of the other podcasts that I've done have been about different systems and about other people and their training methodologies and their story, but no one's really dug hard into mindset. But I also haven't had anybody on here who's ran two back-to-back -back marathons and did 1500 push-ups within 20 hours with a torn forearm. And, uh, you know, so I, I, th I think it's going to be really, really good. Um, now you still, you coach powerlifters now, right. And at the same time, you're developing, you're still developing yourself as an endurance athlete, right? Yeah. I'm still, I'm actually still taking, this isn't a business plug or anything like that, but I, I am still taking on athletes for sure. Um, yeah, definitely do that. And my, my coaching is all hundred percent. Well, 99% online. 
Uh, obviously for competitions, I handle all my athletes and travel in person, but yeah, it's an online, uh, coaching service, I guess. And then, yeah, I train full-time my people. It's funny because over the course of the last couple of years, when I've gotten all the huge following, but through these events and stuff, I always say that I have way more impressions and reaches than my followers suggest. Cause I track that stuff. Right. And I have people that have like friends that have like 10 K followers. And sometimes we get the same amount of reach. So there's a lot of people that are like, just not hitting that follow button. Right. But I get a lot right. of questions all the time on this stuff. So like my daily training is like, I train full time. Like my numbers are pretty, when I say them, I think people get a lot from them. So like, for an example, like an every, like my baseline training is I run six miles. I bike, uh, that would be 13 miles. And then I do 400 to 800 pushups and like 200 to 300 pull-ups and that's kind of like every day Jeez. Um, and then i do i still do all of my stuff that i'm from following you so i do all my daily you know i'll do jefferson curls the atg split squats and loading and stuff because it's really helped my i want to touch on that too it's really helped my body that's why uh, i followed you work for so long because your stuff is has helped me perform at such a better level as an athlete. So yeah, I do both. And then my, my coaching too, is like, like you said about training logs, right? So data is so important, right? It's for this yeah. stuff. So I love with athletes, for an example of like big picture thinking. So as you know, working with so many athletes, like confidence is so important. I always say a, a confident athlete is a dangerous athlete. Right. Yeah. So when you look at people I'm confident, anybody is dangerous. <laughs> so I, always tell people, I always tell people the greats enter the arena calm, right? Cause they're secure. Like look at Floyd when he goes into the arena or the ring, like he's calm, he's secure. Yeah. He's calm, right. And I love Floyd for that, but, um, you're saying Bolt, you know, do you see him yeah. just, he's out joking around, having fun, just like enjoying it, you know? So secure. The, yeah. My favorite photo ever. And I can even send it to you on Instagram is the Olympic marathon trials this year and Galen Rupp won it and it's an iconic running photo now because at the start you see all the runners are jumping and they're whatever and he's actually sitting on the ground just meditated and calm right and they asked him after he's like well like what do i have to be like i'm ready like i'm good to go like i know i'm trained i know how good i am i'm just waiting <laughs> I mean, yeah, exactly. i'm just waiting right so like that's the one side of the the coaching side so with athletes i learned is that yeah like, i definitely have a good training systems and principles etc and I, you know, we acute to chronic load ratios and, and training intensities and volumes and different phases of like preparatory intro capacity blocks, intensity peaking, all that stuff is so important. But right. the best thing about the data is like, I'll do this all the time is I, I had an athlete recently. He's a really good athlete up and coming guy. And he was kind of down after having a couple of bad weeks of training. So I actually just did a screenshot of a training block from his from a year ago compared to now. And it just changed everything because it's like, oh my God, I'm like, that's the progress. My, my his heaviest day a year ago is now like the weights he uses for like his lighter volume day, you know? So it's yep. like, damn, you know? So that's one thing that I find that is super important because, and I think one thing that I maybe have an advantage on from a coaching standpoint is the mindset stuff. Cause I, like you mentioned, I respectfully don't think that a lot of you know, people in powerlifting has ever trained their minds in terms of a physical aspect and training like I have through my exposure. So I'm really able to help my athletes train. I think my expertise and mindset is pretty much on par with my powerlifting programming. So I'm really excited to talk about all of that stuff. And, and I find that most of my 
speaking with others is on the mindset side of stuff because you know you can find a lot of really really good powerlifting strength coaches to get really good training information from but when you have someone like me speaking to you it's there's that side that's like more uncommon to find you know like yeah i'm not saying i'm as good as david goggins or anything like that but you 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 see those people out there and it's like whether you don't like their personalities or not it's like bro how the fuck is this guy doing this you know yeah yeah Um, i mean it's it's look at the end of the day if people don't like people like that it's just because they they're basically pulling the that own person's insecurities and kind of highlighting within themselves their own shortcomings, right? Like, because people hear that and they go, yeah, man, like I really don't have an excuse, but you've just given yourself and your family and your friends excuse after excuse, after excuse, after why you haven't done these things or why you've given yourself excuses is why you haven't accomplished the things that you've wanted to accomplish and so on and so forth. So I think people don't like people like that just because it, it does remind them of like, well, just their, you know, their, their lack of action. Like it's brutal, man. It, it's, it's, it's hard. It's a hard thing to confront, right? Because people want to, people want excuses for things. I mean, we all do, you know, we, we want to have a reason why we shouldn't do something, why we can't do something because it's more comfortable for us to just accept it versus pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and saying, no, fuck this. Like, there's no reason why I can't accomplish a, or can't, you know, B or, or, or whatever. But I, I think the mindset thing we should dive more into for sure. You know, the programming stuff is like, that's, that's its own rabbit hole of there's so many ways and so many methods. And I, I would be interested to kind of hear, you know, with, especially in powerlifting with conjugate method being so popular for a while. And now everyone shits on the conjugate method and, and uh, some people still use it and have success with it. So, you know what I mean? It's just like, in it's, terms of uh, programming people, just it's, it's always an argument back and forth about what's the most effective, you know, undulating intensities, you know, and it, it's just like, it's, it can be chaotic, but, um, but maybe you can go a little bit more into mindset. What do you do for your athletes that, that you think is more beneficial from that, perspective that, that maybe you feel like other people don't do at all, or maybe do well or do differently. Right. So that's a great question. So one thing is that I love to speak on is the national deadlift record that Jordan hit and Jordan is, I'd say he's almost even more well-versed in the mind than I am, but me and him, actually, this is kind of crazy, but we actually moved in together for a year going into nationals to go all in on this. Oh wow. And yeah, like we went all out and we have both explored the mind in so many different ways. And that day when he hit that deadlift, that was not a physical a feat. That was a complete mental feat. So me and Jordan have been exploring the brain and how can we do this? Because you hear about stories of like that one mother who pushed the car off her kids, right? Right, right. Well, I'm sorry, like you and me are pretty strong guys, but like go outside right now and do that. We're not going to do it, right? Right. We real we realize through identifying when we have the higher sense of innate purpose for a positive cause, the higher, the more we're willing to endure to get there. And the more that we're going to be able to fuel noradrenaline. And for people that, you know, are on the sciencey side of things, uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman from Stanford, I just found him recently and not to chew my own horn, but it's cool because his lab is on human performance and they've actually published all this stuff that we've been practicing for the last, I've been practicing for the last couple of years. 
So we always talk about, you know, when you have a positive purpose. So some people are like, you know, I do it for my haters and I'm not against all that. But when you have a place of purpose of doing something for people that you love or people that thinking about people that can make you cheer up and cry like that can never be replaced by hate. So the amount it's almost like, um, like if you talk to Jordan or like me, that record, it was like an outer body experience, like a transcendent state of being. And that is through having such a deep purpose that I'm not making this up. If I am in my room alone or watching TV, if I think deeply on it enough, I can break down and cry like literally. Um, and that level of intensity and neural adrenaline I can secrete far exceeds what most people have can do because they haven't trained it. Do you know what I mean? Right. So I've spent a lot of time on training that through the sense of purpose. So I was, so with my athletes, right. Is that I understand that the mindset stuff I've reached kind of a pretty high level at it. And I can't just get a brand new athlete. I can't be like just layering all this on them, but we take it in steps. So it's like, what's your purpose, right? What is your, what is something that is so important to you that is going to that you can tie into your training, right? So a lot of times it's like their parents or maybe a relative that's passed or something like that, right? Or a girlfriend, right. you know? So when you have that sense of that positive purpose, you can perform way, way better. So when you look at, I love looking at stories of guys in the military who do these crazy feats, right? Where they do like pull-up records or whatever. The reason why these guys can do it is they're they're trained, sure. But the reason, so what separates them from someone who's equally as trained that can't do it is because their purpose is like for their fallen soldiers, right? Guys that they were in right. wars with that died beside them. Yeah. So how the fuck are you going to be? That's funny. That? It's funny you say that because a lot of these guys are like ex-military, like Navy SEALs and shit, right? And it's, and it's, most of them are. One, the guy who did the, the 24-hour plank, there's a guy, it hasn't been registered yet, but I heard there's a guy that just beat John Orr's record who's a military guy. And after the interview, that's what he said. So when I started studying these, sort of cut you off, I, when I started studying these guys, right, like th their sense of purpose is so high, right? So like my purpose, right, through the mental health stuff in kids is what people don't know about me, and I didn't want to go that far back, but I actually was expelled in grade nine from my high school. I went through three second chance school programs. Right. So when you go to these second chance school programs, you're written off. Right. It's like that's where they send you. When I went back into high school, they actually tried to put me in locally developed classes. So below the college level classes, because they said I'll never be able to go to college and I should just try to get a job in the workforce. Right. So for me, like when I was doing these pull ups, my school teacher that I had, he actually brought near the end. He brought four students from the second chance school program. Right. Oh, wow. so like my purpose and my drive is so big because I'm doing it to show these kids who are maybe in abusive homes or are being told they're not going to do anything or whatever. Right. Uh, this is what you can do. And this is, I was in your shoes. I was in that. I, by the way, I wasn't from the abusive side. I had a great family, but I was on the side of the second chance school programs being told I wasn't going to do shit, you know? So that's like, Again, so my purpose is so fucking big that I'm able to withstand a lot of pain. And one cool thing is interesting in the brain is it's called glia. So when glia increases in the brain, that's our that's what tells us that we need to stop running because we're tired and fatigued. Our body's like safeguard, right? We don't want to go there. Right. But we've actually found out through Huberman's work is that when we secrete dopamine, it actually lowers glia. So that's why I try to get people not to be like in this hateful state. I say, try to be happy. You want to be happy. 
the more dopamine, the happier you are, the less rate of perceived fatigue you're going to have. Right. I always tell people when you're super fatigued on a three hour SBD squat, down bench session or a run or whatever it is, start thinking about things that make you happy. And it can be silly, right? It can be like a stand up comedy act. It can be whatever. And they are fucking shocked at how much their fatigue goes down. So the two things I always say is purpose and finding ways to secrete dopamine. So when you, positive purpose, sorry, and secrete dopamine. So when you do those two things, you can really bring down your rate of perceived exertion. Yeah, a couple of things I want to add here because I like how you're talking about this from the context of training athletes. And I kind of want to bring this around to the context of training even general pop because I think this is a really important point that you've made here. And, you know, I've actually talked about this before. Um, I was kind of actually funny enough. I was interviewed about kind of how I got to where I was today. Um, it was, it was like a little weird. I'm, I'm a nobody, but it was like a mini documentary on me. Right. And, um, it was a cool conversation because he asked a lot of interesting questions that I never really sat down and thought about. Um, and he asked me, you know, what I thought made me such a good trainer, such a good coach, like hands-on one-on-one. Um, and I told him that interestingly enough, I, I feel like I had a sales background prior to like fitness. I've always been involved in fitness in some way, CrossFit or whatever, but professionally I was in sales first. And what I realized was that when you ask people like why they want something and I'll kind of touch on it in both, for instance, right? Like when you, when you, if somebody's buying a car, we, everyone needs a car, right? So what is it about the car that you have? That's going to speak to this person and why? Right. Like, and I just say this, I didn't sell cars, but it's a good example because everyone drives a, drives a car for the most part. And you start to understand that there's underlying reasons and purposes for almost everything. And they can go quite deep. And when you initially, when you ask people, you get very shallow responses. Right. And, and so to bring it back to fitness, like, why do you want to work? Like, why did you, why do you want to coach? Why do you want to work with me? Right. And so I get this middle-aged guy, successful businessman. He's a little overweight and he goes, Oh, I just want to lose weight. Right. And you go, okay, well kind of everybody wants to lose weight. So why do you want to lose weight? And he goes, well, well, you know, my kids and, and you know, whatever. And even that I'm like, okay, like, cool. That you want to do it for your kids. Why do you want to lose weight? Well, you know, I overheard my kid talking to his friends and his friend, you know, said I was fat. And it really hurt my feelings and you know, whatever. So why it is still for the kid, he feels like he is embarrassed, you know, for his kids or by his kids. And, and that was like a really drive. That was a big driving force for him to, um, to lose the weight. So it, it became like, Oh, I want to lose weight because I'm overweight, obviously to, you know, I overheard my kid talking to his friends and he called me fat. Like that's, that's got a sting. You know what I mean? Um, and another, another example I gave was another male client, same sort of situation. Um, why do you want to lose weight? Right. Or, or what? No, he wasn't even, he didn't even want to lose weight. It was, he was leaner. He wanted to put on some muscle mass, you know, why, you know, why do you want to do that? Because, and the reason I, and I want to, pre- the reason I ask these questions is because I've been doing this long enough that I know those reasons are not going to keep people going. Right. And so if you want to get out of the little three month window that people train in before they quit, and then you see them again, three months later, and you keep going through that cycle, 
you have to do exactly what you said. And that is find this really deep purpose. And it doesn't have to mean anything to you as a coach, right? As long as it means something to them. And so the same example, it's like, oh, well, you know, uh, you know, I want to do it, you know, to make my wife proud of me, you know, because she looks great. She's been working out with this trainer and she looks fantastic. And I feel a little sloppy when I go out with her or whatever. And I'm like, okay, cool. Why do you want to, why do you want to put on muscle mass? And then, oh, well, you know, me and my wife haven't been intimate in like a year. Mm. So there's the real reason, right? So it's, it's, it's not like, oh, I just want to kind of impress my wife. No, it's like, no, you haven't been intimate with your wife for a year. You feel like physically that might be a piece of it that's contributing to this intimacy and you feel this responsibility to, you know what I mean? So it goes so much deeper than these, than these surface shallow answers that you give. And so I like that you gave that from, from a professional pro athletes standpoint. And I'm sure you have, and, and, and my, my only point in bringing this up is because it applies even to people who are general pop. Cause some people might listen to this and go, okay, well, I'm not a, I'm not trying to break powerlifting world records. So how, how far do I really need to dig? You know, my answer is you actually might need to even dig farther. hundred percent because you've lived this, this, this life of comfort where you're just kind of in apathy and you're just accepted with things the way they are, but there's some deep rooted purposes behind why you act, what has finally motivated you to do the thing that you do. And if I let you leave that interview, just saying, Oh, you want to lose weight. I'm not going to be of service to you because I know that in, but, but once you say it, right, that's what I learned in sales. Once I get you to say, I don't have to, I don't have to sell you anything. You've already sold yourself. I just need you to reiterate it to yourself and I need you to hear it in your own words. And then once, once we've done that, I've got you. And those are the clients that you keep for years. And I've built a business off of keeping clients for years, not, not just weeks or months or, you know, years. Um, so I really like that because if you're a coach listening or a trainer or personal trainer or, or whatever, whatever title you have, I think it's a really important lesson to understand that you have to dig deeper. And it also is going to build a high level of trust because if somebody is willing to tell you these things, they trust you. Yep. Um, and, and that's going to be a massive relationship as, as well, because, because then you can just be real with each other. You can get down and, 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 and nothing is masked and nothing is pretended and nothing's faked and whatever. And so that's one of the biggest. And if I can't pull those answers out of people, there's nothing I can do for you. You know, I have some friends that they train at this gym and this gym, go hit them up or whatever, you know, they'll, they'll deal with you. But for me, it's, I try to find those individuals who have a real reason. I don't want to say real reason and invalidate anybody else, but a, a much deeper purpose. And then, like you said, while these purposes may seem, it's kind of sad. <laughs> it's, it's still, it is a great purpose. Like, if you really look at it, like it is still for my kids, for my wife, for my family, for my long, my, my, you know, another example is a, a client goes to friends birthday parties and he's like the only dad who, who doesn't partake in any of the activities sort of such, you know, so he's always kind of like on the sideline. They don't want to be a sideline dad anymore. Um, and then for athletes listening, what's going to elevate you above everybody else. You just want to be the best. Everyone does. Everyone wants to be the best. Exactly. So, so you really have to push it. I think that was a fantastic message. I think that's, you know, if I may say so myself, I think it's a really good message for everybody to really grasp onto. And I want to keep touching on this, if that's okay with you. 
For sure. Um, so there's a couple of things that you mentioned that are great because, okay, I'm going to, this is going to be a little bit of a tangent, but I'll t- try to do my best to tie it all in. So general pop versus athlete, one thing that an athlete has no matter their highs and lows is they have a habitual practice of training that is like uh, brushing their teeth. Like I have athletes when they're in their lows or highs, their work might not be their best work, but they're still getting that work in. But for general, that's not going to happen. So I think I actually, what I'm learning from you and I do agree with you is that I would say the general pop needs more of that self identity through that deeper purpose to keep going through those processes until they maybe, maybe your athlete or sorry, your client that wanted to lose that weight. Maybe he's into two years of training. So he's got that foundation and habit. Yeah. over those three, like he's got past that three month or six month or whatever it is. Right. But I think that's one thing that athletes do have an advantage on, right? Is you have the competition, you have the habit for general pop. And one thing that was interesting, what you said, it sparked a thought is that when I was in the corporate world, so I actually was managing Starbucks's and I was so freaking lucky in life and just straight luck that I had a, a mentor and a boss named Derek Carew. That was all my other bosses, my whole life were just like, okay, you have to do this. You have to do the product here. You have to schedule this. You have to do this. He was the only person that's ever just asked questions. That's it. He's like, oh, I saw you schedule this person on this day. How come? Or I saw you move the, the sales product from here to here. Like, And he would break down, ask me numbers, but it was always questions. And then he would make me really think on these things. And he is an expert. He is so fucking smart that he knew what the goddamn answer was most of the time. Right. But you know, his example was like, you know, if you see a bed mass equation, right? We teach kids how to break that down step by step by step to get to the answer. And then they learn and retain. If I just tell you what the answer is and you don't go through the steps, that's like basic grade five math, right? You don't retain it. So flipping that back to what you're saying is, is that when, like you said, when you can get the person to actually think through that process and then say it, because that's something that like you have a high level in, right? Is that, is that you with your experience and intelligence know that, that's going to help them the best, but there's someone in a situation that clearly don't have that because they're in a state where they're not comfortable or happy with what they're doing. Right. So by you actually getting them to dive deep, it really even trains their mind to be able to even go there without you eventually, if that makes sense. So yeah. I think that's super important because, you know, like you see it all the time, people will lose 20 pounds. They'll get in shape for three months or whatever it is. And they're, they're losing it again. And like the one with the intimacy thing was just like, that's deep. That's super, super deep. And that guy can get back to that. Like, and I'm not a relationship expert, but that guy could get even back to the intimacy before he even gets in that ideal shape because she sees yeah. him hammering and working and trying to get better. And see, you know what I mean? Like competency is super intra- attractive. So well, even just the acknowledgement of like, this could be a, this could be an issue. Like this could be contributing to the issue. It may not even really been the issue. <laughs> you know what I mean? But that's what he perceived as, as possibly an issue. Or, but again, or, or just even the work ethic that's going to come along with, you know, I've gotten too comfortable in this thing, you know, or whatever. And this is where we are. So I got to kind of get myself uncomfortable or whatever. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, I'm sure it's probably a lot of the guys listening to this are going to (laughs) go, that doesn't mean go angrily work out at the gym. You know what I mean? But, um, but, but it wasn't even about just like the physical, like when I say intimate, I mean, like, there's no there was no like intimate connection, right? It was just like existence versus any sort of, mm. you know what I mean? It wasn't just like, oh, we're not having sex. You know, it, it's like, there's no 
just that it's, it's a little different. I don't want people to get confused. Like, Oh, the guy just wasn't getting late. Like, look, guys can get late. It's not a problem. It's it's not an issue for most men. Like <laughs> you can some way, somehow find a way it's, it was more the connection. Um, right. Which I, th- which I think is just super cool. Cause it's like, you just go, wow. I mean, wait, you know, you're <laughs> wow, dude. You know, um, there's a, and the there's fact a- that he wants to work towards something there, you know? No, I, I think that that's a huge, and I, I'm glad that you dive deeper into the intimacy, intimacy beyond just like the sexual experience. But the, right. there's a, um, there's a guy I follow on Twitter. His name's Adam Lane Smith. It's funny. Cause he writes like, uh, like, you know, like fiction, like medieval times books, but he's actually a clinical psychiatrist and he's done it for like 25 years. And he had this really great thread. He said, for every retweet, I'll say a harsh, a like um, psychology truth or whatever. And one of them that's always stuck, I screenshot and saved it on my phone, is that if you give a man purpose, he will walk through shattered glass with a smile. Yeah. And that's something that's always resonated with me. So again, you and me can probably speak, well, we definitely can speak to men more than female, Brian, because we are a man. Let's not try to even go that route. Yeah, we might. Yeah, I'm not going to go that route. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, like, I'm not, I'm never going to be that ignorant or naive to be like, I know that. I, I'll speak on the man side because that's right, right. Um, yeah. So I think that's super important. And like, it's interesting that you broke down the general pop. Cause I do agree. Yeah. When you cannot get them to identify that yeah. because then they have, and even like you can take it to the next level where it's like, you can almost coach them into, okay. So when you don't want to go, whatever the general pop to say, they're not, you know, running, you know, 20 kilometers every day, but just say that they have like a 5k run or something. It's like, well, the days you don't, well, what you do is you just, you can write it down on your, notepad or in your phone or your screensaver, whatever, as a reference point of being like, okay, find that purpose again. And then they go at the door. Right? right. So yeah, I think that's super important. And then when you look at like, it's cool though. The coolest part is that this actually works for general pop and elite athletic performance as well. Like it's yeah. the brain is the brain. Like, and if anything that we have studied in the, in science on humans, the most of, in my opinion is neuroscience, right? So yeah, that's super important. And yeah, but for the performance side of things, I do believe a positive purpose is better than a negative, but negatives yeah. can help for sure. And I, I'm sure you've seen it. I've seen it where like, I've had someone who has like, he didn't have an ideal peak. His taper week wasn't good. He had to move stress, all this stuff going on, but he right. showed up that day and dominated. And I've had people who had everything go super smooth. Right. And they go to the meet. And they don't do so well. And I think the biggest difference is that mind, right? And obviously you want the athlete to have a good training and, and peak and taper. But I really do believe that the people that have their minds in that just a different level are always going to have the highest chance of outperforming. And one good example I have on this is that I'll bring her back up again, but when Des Linden won the Boston marathon, so it's very common, like Kenyans and Ethiopians, they dominate marathon running. And it's very common that they won't even run in the rain they'll, they'll go on the treadmill. Right. But Des Linden, where she lived in Boston at the time, she was, she had, you know, minus 20 winters, you know? So like, or for you guys to be zero degrees or whatever, but like, so she has no choice, but to train in those environments. So on that day, again, she's a great winner, but on ideal conditions, she's not going to win that race. Well, these Kenyans and Ethiopians, no disrespect to them. They were like dropping out. They were slowing down. They were quitting because it was like torrential rain, super like, you know, 20 mile an hour winds or whatever and she trains in that environment she's trained right. mind you know what i mean i guess that's a little bit off-centered from purpose 
but um so i that's like more like the exposure side of things but, but it, that's still important because i kind of want to segue to that next um if if we've covered everything here at least for now i i want to go to environment i think this is going to be a, another important thing you brought this up earlier you said that you have a group where you have your your pro guys and some more of your you know amateur beginner sort of athletes but you have them in the same group you've created an environment in which your young inexperienced guys can thrive because they're going to have experienced guys sort of guiding the way but i think it also helps your experienced guys thrive because it reminds them of of a couple things one they were where these guys were at some point right so it's it's almost humbling in a way to go oh yeah man i remember when i was like benching 225 you know what i mean like that wasn't so long ago right and now it also gives them some, some purpose in a role of leadership almost because, you know, and that's what you see a lot, right? Like we, when I worked at ATG, we had basketball guys come in and we had a guy specifically who talked about LeBron James, he played with him on the heat. And, uh, once you're the best, what is your purpose? Like you've already proved everyone you're the best. And so it was cool to hear stories about LeBron actually really becoming a center point of motivation and co like almost coaching and mentoring for these other guys. Right. So it wasn't just like, I'm the best, that's it, blah, blah, blah. It was, he was now doing what he could to develop the mindset, the attitude and these other things in these other guys. Did he necessarily have to probably not, but he did. Right. It's like, it's the same how like you hear the stories of how Kobe would reach out to Michael. They're still playing in the league against each other. Kobe's super young. Michael's, you know, still fucking Michael. Older Michael, but still Michael. And mentoring Kobe. And environment's important because I'm getting ready to build a gym. Well, I'm in the middle of building a gym uh, that's two to three months out. Um, and one of my biggest drivers behind that is creating an environment, especially in times like now where people's communities, environments have been stripped from them. Uh, not so much here in Florida. Fortunately, we're very blessed to um, be able to congregate. And well, come real quick. I'm for people that know that don't know this, and we don't have to go too deep into it. But I am in the most locked down and restricted place in North America right now. Um, anyways, keep going. Sorry. Yeah. No. Oh, well. And I think we'll definitely, for sure, come back to that because I think this it also will plays a role because I am curious as to how you keep these guys training and on their toes and stuff in times like this, but. And it might even tie in with this. So we might go ahead and, and get into it here in a minute, but environment, why it's important. Why, why is having that environment and community so important in terms of the development of these athletes? And again, even general pop, because a lot of people ask, you know, how to get people to keep showing up. Right. So outside of like their individual purpose, there's also group purpose, right? So a lot of people will have their own purposes for why they do things. And then you often find that people have these purposes that they share within the group, right? Like if you ask almost anybody, specifically women, men probably are a little bit more hard headed about it, or just like, it becomes a very like alpha thing, but it's like, why do you go to X yoga class? Right. And a lot of times the answer is going to be, oh, because my friends go to that yoga class. And the same thing with CrossFit, right? Like, why do you go to CrossFit? You go beat the living hell out of your body 
you're in physical therapy. Yeah, I'm just kind of making a joke. Not really, but kind of, but anyways, why do you go? Oh, well, I really love the group. I really love the community. I really like the people in my Wednesday, 5 PM class, you know, and they hold me accountable and things like this. So how much does environment matter to you as an athlete, uh, to you as a coach and, and, and what you have to create for your athletes, because it sounds like you've done a good job at creating that. Great. So I, and I, I like that you separate it because when I'm doing any kind of conversation, I really do like to separate the coach side from the athlete side. Cause for me personally, especially that I'm an extremist on the athlete side for ultra stuff, there's definitely some differences, but for my athletes, like no one's special. First of all, no one is a God. No one is above anybody. Like you might have a better total in your sport, but that, you know, so when we're all training, no one knows other than like, we know, like if we're all training together to say, at a gym pre COVID and you see Jordan, like we all know like how good he is, but there's no special, like he doesn't get a special bar or a rack. Like he doesn't get any <laughs> special treatment. Like there's no special Jordan rack. Oh man. No, exactly. And then like, for me as a coach, like I don't give him, like if we're all like, I remember being at the Queens gym where there's a lot of students, Queen students that are my athletes. I'd go, I do these random pop-ups. I love them. And everyone usually trains around the same time. And I would just do a random pop-up out of nowhere. Um, and just like train and hang out and coach or whatever. And like, I'll probably spend the least amount of time with the best or like the Jordans and more time with everyone else. But anyways, the, the cool thing that you said that makes a lot of sense is that I always told Jordan, for an example, I said, you have no possible concept of how much a word from your mouth is like when he's a young man, right? He's, you know, 2021 20, at the time. And I said, when your words carry more weight, you have to be more careful how you move them. Yeah. So I would see him go up to the a kid deadlift and Jordan's a God at the, at the university, right? Everyone's like, Oh, that's that guy who deadlifted. Yeah. So he deadlifted um, 765 pounds to put in perspective. So eight plates on the bar. So he would go up routinely to a guy. He doesn't even really know. And the guy would be just deadlifting 225. He's new in the gym or whatever. And Jordan would go up to him and be like, Hey man, great work ethic. And it's like, bro, like that is like, high level leadership, but that's like an environment side of things that I've coached my high level guys. I, one thing that no one's special, but I demand leadership out of my higher level athletes on the team. So for an example, we, one of my favorite things in our group chat is like people will post the PR on Instagram and then someone will share it to our group chat. And my high level guys are always the guys that are responding quickly and giving love because it means a lot. And it's not yeah. any fitness. It's because that, like you said, they know what it's like struggling to squat their first, you know, three plate or four plate squat, you know, and, and they're the ones that are like, yo, I remember that. And I think that environment is super helpful because in sport, we all have people we look up to, like even for strength and range work, like I look up to you. Right. So yeah. it's um, that's super powerful. And I'm, I remember experience that I had as an athlete once is that, I always use, I'm always at the, this military gym before COVID where I would train and I would do this same pull-up rock and people would take notice just because I would literally be there for two hours doing pull-ups on the minute. That's, people, that's like me doing squats at crunch fitness right now. Like I just go over, I go over into the corner and I'm there for three hours just squatting and people think I'm like fucking nuts. Right. Because people go in there and it's like, they do a few sets and they, they walk away. And, right? it. and it's like, people come in and I'm over in the corner squatting and they leave and they come back the next day and I'm there again. You know what I mean? It's like, it does, you know, it is funny. It is funny. Yeah. Yeah. It's hilarious. It's, it's really funny. And I've had experience. And then they ask you how you get like, how do I get better at squatting? You know, it's like, 
well, you see me here every day, right? Like, not that that's what it takes, you know what I mean? But the point is like, they could easily answer their own question if it's like, well, I practice it, you know? (laughs) I'm never trying to be like this, like arrogant asshole, but someone's like, how'd you get so good at, how do you get so good at doing pull-ups? I'm like, well, you got to do them. And a lot of them, but anyways, yeah, like it was funny because I was at the gym and and I've had, I'm not bragging, but I, I I do these, we can touch on it later if you want, but I have these things called, I call them hell sessions. So when I'm getting ready for a record attempt, I do these hell sessions once a week. So that can be up to like four or five, six hours of me doing pull-ups or push-ups and people take notice. And one day this guy comes up to me, he goes, Hey man, I'm, I've been watching you in this gym for a long time. I'm really struggling to get like five pull-ups in or whatever. Yeah. And then I was like, well, tomorrow I'm here at 12. Why don't you come and do a workout with me? You know, like they don't, I don't give a fuck that I have a record or I'm one of the best right. people about pull-ups or push-ups. Like I'm not above that. Like I understand where I stand in my sport or my craft, but like, I'm always going to help that person. But like, Cool do they thing. do they show up? That's my question for you. That guy did, yeah. That okay, guy did. because because I've been asked many times about like how do you squat so deep or how you know and it's like, well, look, man, I'm here from nine to whenever every day. Show up and do it, and of course they go, yeah, 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 yeah. I'll be, yeah, man, for sure, for sure. And then you're there the next day squatting, and guess who's not there? That guy. Well, my so, best example, sorry, my best no, example go ahead. That, uh, in because in Canada where I live, like it's we have really bad wind, well, cold winters. So I do this thing through October, November, where I go to this place called the pier. It's like a famous place in Kingston. Uh, and I swim and, you know, it's miserably cold out and people saw me post videos of me doing this. And I'm not joking you. There are a lot of people that are like, Oh, I want to try that. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, 12 PM. I'm there. Come whatever. I'm not waiting for you though. And people never show up. And there's only two people that did. One was a girl, one was a guy. And the guy's story was the better one because of the weather conditions. So it was, and I'm a savage of a human there. It was almost to a point where I was like, I don't want to do this. Like, I'm not going to do this, but I did. I showed up. I'm always going to show up no matter what. And it was raining though. I'm not a very good swimmer. The waves were like crashing over the dock. Like it was just not good. And I'm there. And it's like, I remember it was like 1159. I always look around at 12 to see if they're going to come and ever do. I shit you not, out of the corner of my eye, I see him. His name was Devin. And he walks up. He's like, all right, let's do it. And thankfully, he's actually like a lifeguard and a really good swimmer. We hopped in. And and uh, I think we're only in there for a short amount of time because it was pretty dangerous with the waves. But yeah, it's very rare. Right. But that guy, though, like it's it's a two, the, that kind of community part and environment is like a two-way purpose, right? Is that when you're the higher level guy, you get so much purpose. And I tell my high level guys, like, you guys are going to learn through time of how powerful it is to be able like getting messages from people of like, Hey, I've been following you from afar. And because of you, I actually started my running journey and I ran my first 10 K race or my first half marathon or whatever it is. And yeah. I don't give a shit what you're, I'll never ask someone what their time is. I don't care yeah. if they yeah, want to. I mean, awesome. That's, I mean, that's, that's always cool as, 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 as an individual, the fact that you impacted somebody like that. I mean, I get messages. I got a bunch today of like people who are like, man, like I've been following you for a while. I haven't bought any of your, pro- they always, it's funny. They always preface with like, I haven't bought any of your programs. I'm like, oh, it's fine, man. Like, <laughs> you know, like, but he'll go, um, but man, I've been, I've been, I've looked at your page and I've just been implementing a lot of the stuff and, and, you know, I've been stretching and, you know, you start to like, it's just those people that took it into their own hands, you know, and, and just were like, fuck it. I'm just going to give it a go and just try it. And they do. And then magically they like have some results from it, you know, but it's cool when you, Cause you don't even realize, like, again, cause these aren't people that are like, I interact with people that are doing my stuff every day. 
right? I get on answer messages, whatever. But when these people just come out of the woodwork and it's like, I've been following you, even you, you know, it's like, I've been following you. I had no idea you were following me, like no offense, but it's when you come in, it's like, wow, that's, that's a really cool. That's cool that I had some, some impact on, on people. And I think you make a good point as when you are at some point of leadership, it's important to mind what you say, because you're right. Because especially on, you know, kids have access to Instagram and in, in these things, right? Like young kids and, and they take things at face value, right? So you have to be very responsible with what comes out of your mouth because it is going to impact how people make decisions, especially younger, more inexperienced and not always younger because you don't have to be young to be inexperienced in something. But yeah, I think that's, you know, that's really cool. I want you to continue, but it's, it's, um, I, I don't, I, one of my biggest frustrations with certain people that I've been involved with in some way in the fitness industry is that they don't realize that they don't understand that everything that comes out of their mouth, somebody's going to take is like the word of God, you know? And, and so when they say things, they, they don't, they don't They're not really thinking of the implications it could have on other people in a, in a big picture. Well, right? it's, funny. it's funny though, because, and it kind of baffles me in a way and I'm not being disrespectful to them in any means, but this is like simple, even like training philosophy one-on-one of like, okay, so I come to work with you to say, and I'm like crazy tight. Like, are you going to get me loading 225 on a Jefferson curl? Probably not. Right. You're yeah. probably just going to get me to do like even a wall stretch to get my hamstrings looser. Right. So it's like, there's, we all know this. And like, this is like, you can get it in a, in a weekend, you know, certification class of regression and progressions and et cetera. So right. I think like when we're speaking on these things, something that I'm always careful of, like when I post my own training, I was lit, last year, actually, I was doing a lot. I was doing like a disclaimer in my post. You know, like I, I would, I do these things in the summer where I'll do like a 30 K run with it fluids. Yeah. And it's like, don't do this. Right. Do not do this. <laughs> right, right, right. Like, I'm showing you guys what I do. And you guys got to understand when you're training for ultra marathons, 100 milers, 30 milers, you need exposure to intense training suffering because yeah. it's going to be even worse in the race. Right. But don't yeah. go do that. You know? So even with no, like. Um, that's a, that's so because I, I posted a video a long time ago of me repping out like bodyweight Jefferson curls. We talked 200, probably 10, 15 pounds or something at the video, time. Yeah. And, uh, it, it caught on to a bunch of big time fitness accounts that are all, were like, don't do this. You're going to fucking destroy your back. And these guys are, blah, blah. but again, they, they didn't take into any sort of consideration that I had been doing this for like, I, I've been using the exercise for like seven years, you know, it's yeah. like, <laughs> like, and these are even top fitness. So these aren't even just like, these aren't even just young kids going, Oh my God, th these are, these are professionals that are going, Oh my God, I just saw this on Instagram. Don't, and of course. And I believe actually in the post, I said, don't attempt this, but also don't be afraid of bending your back yeah, and, and, and know that it's, a, it's a long road of going from just being able to do it, it with nothing to this. And, and anyways, but yeah, yeah, go ahead. Continue. It's, no, it's, all good. it's the same thing of like, you know, where I am, where I understand, like as a runner, I'm pretty, honestly, pretty average ultra runner, but in terms of pull-ups, like there's only a handful of us that can do what I can do. And it's like, 
But is there such yeah. thing as an average ultra runner? Like, is that a no, thing? Maybe not. Maybe not. It's, like, I mean, no, it's already got ultra in front of it. So, you know, I think an yeah. average person would just be a runner. I think you're an ultra runner that takes you like, <laughs> that already right. takes you a, a much farther ahead than most right. people. I'll, 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 do, I'll define that. No, you're so right though. You're so right. I'll define that better. I'll say in terms of placings and times, I'm pretty average and ultra. Pretty <laughs> ultra runner is insane. Like whenever I tell someone who who's like in the fitness community in any way that they're a trainer of any sport, the moment that I say I'm an ultra marathoner, they're like, I remember there's one guy I really like. He's a, he's a good guy to Kingston. He's like, oh, so you're one of those crazy fuckers. And I'm yeah, like, pretty much. <laughs> you know, like, that. But it's like these pull-ups or, or whatever. It's like, yeah, I've done this for so goddamn long. And you know, you and me are going to see eye and eye on this, I'm sure. But like, I always say like, there's no bad movements, just ill-prepared bodies. So there's guys out there. I, I love the example of like John Hack. So he's one of the best powerlifters in the world. And he he's always deadlifted conventional with a rounded back, right? He has very low back injuries. He can deadlift over 900 pounds and not making that up with a rounded back. And it's like, well, he's done this for 10 years with that same rounded back. His yeah. body is designed to train that way. So yep. it's not a bad now. I get that if you've been training with a completely neutral spine under maximum loads, and then there's a lot of flexion in a movement, like I get that, but yeah, you know, so one example that, that I actually, I want to say it during this call, I know we kind of got off from the environment topic, but from this call, and you're going to love this is it's I, all right. know, I think my users are used to me kind of segueing off of shit uh, randomly. So it's, it's fine. <laughs> I, I, my, my philosophy is that if we're giving really good information and content, I find that most of like people that listen to podcasts that I'm on don't care. They're just like, hundred oh, percent. I mean, even the other day I did IG live and I was like, I'm gonna keep this to an hour. And of course, like an hour and a half. I'm like, Jesus, I always do that. So no, it's fine. Go ahead. <laughs> the, the, the interesting one on, um, shit, what was I going to say? The, uh, oh yeah, I was a strength coach and you're going to, you can make fun of me for this. That quote unquote would tell people strength athletes and powerlifters, I don't know, three years ago that you don't want to be more flexible because you're going to lose the elasticity and tension and get weaker. I was that guy. So like, I always like to also tell people of like where I once was with my thinking compared to now, cause I'm always going to evolve. And my biggest right. oh shit moment was watching Olympic weightlifters. And there was a guy, I forget his name. He squatted, he was squatting 600 pounds, beltless. Probably Toshiki. Uh, yeah. That's the, the, the yeah. Japanese guy. Yeah. 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 And I'm like, interesting. It's like him, him, T and Tao, Clarence Kennedy. They're all kind of like squatting 300 plus like raw. It's yeah, insane. it's it's grass. Yeah, it's pretty nuts. And the thing is, is that I'm thinking like, well, these guys can do the splits and this well, squatting that much and being in that weight class because like Mart Saint, you know, Mart Saint is squatting like 400 kilos or something stupid, you know. And, that, and, if you're if you're a 200 pound, like just say you're a, a 205 pound or 93 kg guy and down, and you're hitting a 600 pound squat, yeah, we have certain outliers that are free. But if you can do that in your lifetime, you are like in the smallest percentage. You're a god. Yeah, you're a god. You're a, god. <laughs> you're a squat god anyway. <laughs> exactly, right? So, but it's like, these guys have these crazy flexibilities. So it's like, and I actually, funny, I made a post recently on some strength and range stuff and someone commented and I said, listen, if more flexibility made us weaker, why are these Olympic weightlifters? And I was kind of rude, but I was like, how much do you squat? 400? Why are there guys like squatting 200 pounds more than you that can do the splits? Like it's just not possible. So it's funny though, because one thing, I guess we went completely off topic, but the one thing that's interesting <laughs> is that I used to, I used to say that I used to say, no, we don't want to be flexible. Now I'm the opposite, but well, I mean, this can, you know, this contributes to environment because how you, you know, the dogma that you, that you get out of your life 
the more dogma you can get out of your environment, the better you know, people excel. Right. So this brings it, it's still environment. Yeah, sure. And, and, <laughs> and I guess I'll, I'll wrap on the environment thing real quick is that you asked. So as like a coach, like I mentioned, right. As we have that group chat, no one's special. The leaders get pride and purpose and value by adding value to the more amateur or novice athletes and the right. novice and amateur athletes get a lot of purpose knowing that these high level guys, because at the end of the day, what I realized is that my high level guys, they don't respect the weight you lift. They respect the work ethic that you work at. Right. Yeah. So like with me with programming, it's like, okay, the only difference in total volume is just because you're so much stronger. So I'll give you an example. Like, so if I got, you know, tries the Andrew squatting over 600 and he's the 19 year old, it's like, so he's doing just say, I don't know, 16 sets in a week of like, you know, his working sets. Okay. Well, there's a guy who's squatting 400 pounds. He's still doing 16 working sets, but right. he doesn't have, he's not squatting 40,000 pounds of volume a week, obviously, because the math, he's not as strong. So Andrew can see a guy with a 400 pound squat and he can understand that, like respect that work ethic and, and give from that. You know what I'm saying? That, that dap for that, because, yeah, you know, like I made in my post today, it's, when you see athletes at the top of the podium, yeah, sure, there's some outliers and LeBrons, I get it. But most of the time, it's people that have had have trained with higher chronic training volumes and workloads for longer periods of time with less injuries, in my opinion. I have to agree on that, and I'm glad you said that because there's such a push to get people to do less. So you know what? Sorry, <laughs> it's funny because and I know I hope my boy Jason listens to this because we always joke about it. And he, in my opinion, he's the best coach in the world for powerlifting. But we always joke about this all the time. But there's this there's this new concept, and it is, I guess, in the scientific literature, it is legit. It's called uh, uh, what is it? There's MRV and and MEV, so minimum effective volume. Right. And I'm, and I'm always thinking like, why? Like I always tell my athletes and other coaches is that if you have an athlete, okay, and just say we're talking about an athlete who's performing at a pretty damn high level and has a chance to be seriously win some shit. It's like they have maybe 10 years of their prime in their entire lives. The only, the biggest disservice you could do as a coach is train them on minimum effective volume and dose. Yeah. Like that's crazy. Like I don't understand. It's like driving. It's like driving around on E like, yeah, you can still drive your car around on empty, I love that but but why wouldn't you fill the gas tank up? Well, how about this? (laughs) I would say like, go tell, go tell an elite marathoner to start running less mileage in a week. Yeah. Good luck. You know what I mean? Like it's just not going to happen. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting conversation because, you know, if you just look objectively, right, because I want everyone to understand there's nothing wrong with objective evidence. Okay. I have this conversation a lot with stretching and people go, well, you don't need to stretch that much to be flexible. And I'm like, really tell a ballerina that tell a gymnast that, Tell, you know, well, the minute this, the, you know, the such and such says the minimum effective dose is this. And you go, look, if that was really the case, they would all be doing it. Like, but if you, even if you look at any, almost any sport, anyone who excels, like you said, is putting in more volume of the work. 100%. Sure. Sure. Every now and again, there might be an outlier of someone who just doesn't have to work quite as hard, but it's so freaking rare. Like it's, even if you look historically at some of the strong guy, like some of the strong, strong guys from like turn of the century to mid century athletes before drugs and stuff were even in, in, like in the picture, really 
you know, like Pat Casey and guys like this, these guys had blue collar labor jobs where they worked all day long, brick and hauling bricks, construction, railroad, all sorts of like crazy hard blue collar jobs. And then they train their ass off a lot and a lot. And it's, do you think Ronnie Coleman would have been Ronnie Coleman if he trained exactly the minimum effective dose of 12 sets, which is what the research shows that is the minimum amount of total working sets needed to produce muscle. Like, no, (laughs) that dude was putting in his sets in his reps, two or three training sessions a day. And he worked a full-time job. He was a, you know what I mean? Like all you have to do is look at the people who have actually accomplished these things and, and just really look at their work. And it, I, you know, I've seen the working, the, 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 the logs of some of these Chinese Olympic weightlifters and these Russian weightlifters, the volume is immense. Look at the Bulgarians, look at the Russians and people can scream drugs and scream whatever they want. At the end of the day, it, it's, it does everyone is on drugs. The reason the Bulgarians did so well is because they trained three times a day. They, they just did that much more volume than everybody else. Well, I think that it's, well, one thing is that, and I, again, to respect to them and I have like a, a, a confidentiality that I can't share it, but the number exact numbers, but when I look at, uh, I had full access to Taylor Atwood's training, right. Who people don't, to us in the perspective, he's 163 pounds. He's squatting close to 660 pounds. God, he's benching almost four times. Is that almost four times? Or is that a little yeah. over? So he, he's benching 450 pounds and he's deadlifting over 700. So I get that he's an, he is literally the best lifter in the world. So, you know, but at the same time, when you see his training, it is fucking mind blowing. And I have an intern right now who's trying to like, he's working his way to be a coach or whatever. So I've shared some of the training numbers from Taylor to him. And he goes, what, how's it even possible? And I'm like, that's the problem is that we not that we're questioning to try to learn, but that we, we aren't getting enough exposure to the people that are at the top and what they're actually doing. So my example, he's a good example on that, but most people aren't doing enough work that they, because it's their mind. So my example from is myself. So when I got into running, it's funny. I had, I didn't follow I've never seen a race. I've never followed anything in running my entire life. And when I started training for this marathon, um, I, I ran my first 10 K run ever. It was hard. And some girl that I worked with at the time was like, Oh, you should try like a half marathon or something. And I was like, Oh, so like three days later I went out and I ran a half marathon and it's like, that was my fifth run of my life. And my example is, is not to like brag, but my example was I have literally no concept in my mind that a half marathon is even that crazy or 10 K for your, or whatever is crazy. Like I had no attachment of emotion to a numerical value. I just thought it was better that you don't. Right. It's almost better. So for me, it's pull-ups or whatever, like in running, like I'm someone that's just like, I like to do a lot of work and you get a lot better with that. So I think one of the issues with this, you know, minimum dose or the social media stuff is you see like, all a lot of my powerlifters, I'm like, I get that you guys want to follow people, and I'm never gonna ever as a coach say you shouldn't follow this or that or person, like that's your own Instagram, your free yeah. choices. But the more people that you're following that are putting out this stuff, were like, you know, one of the ones that I saw was like, it's like, oh, you don't need to, you don't need to taper your bench press. I'm like, well, if you don't need to taper something to peak perform, you're not training it hard enough, you know. So it's like people follow these things or they follow like there's a couple of deadlift outliers that are only deadlifting like once a week. It's like, it's like, okay, well, 
that's not like the 90% of high level athletes. Like that's a small percentage. And I, I really, I'm someone on the fence of this. I rather do too much and find that that's too much and then bring it back. Cause that's when you can actually find that sweet spot. It's easier to scale back. Yeah. It's easy to go back because that's when you find out like a lot of Steve Bagnus's work, right? Like on peak performance, he has a great book on that, but it's like, you want to obviously get like the, 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 the stress recovery adaptation and too much can definitely impair that. And too little, you're not going to get enough. So you got to find right. that spot. I'm not saying that, that you, you can't just like train aimlessly, but like you said, when we, we need to start getting away from like these case studies of 12 people. Like, yeah. I- one more thing I want to say on that is that no, please do. <laughs> also, also when you look at these case studies, right? It's like never in science, when you look at like neuroscience or medical science, like to get peer-reviewed of neuroscience, you need like thousands of or hundreds and hundreds of case studies and in controlled environments. Super like, controlled environment. Yeah. People we could go down the rabbit hole of why studies are so shit, but that's why. <laughs> well, exactly. And one thing that I'll rant about all the time, and I'm very outspoken on, is that go to one of my elite powerlifters or a really good, like pro level powerlifters and go say, Hey, I want to use you for 12 weeks in your prime of your career. When you're going, when you can win a national championship and go to worlds and set records, I want you to follow though. Instead of, I want you to leave your coach, follow this 12 week program. Yeah. Ex- like you're not going to do it. Right. And no. 12 people, I hate to break it to people. 12 people is not a case study, a big no. enough case study to have any causation. So, so for me, when it comes to athletic performance, I, I'm not anti-science. I follow the daily underutilized periodization intensities and I monitor these things, right. but I became a much better coach off my intuition and experience versus, so for me, for an example, I always say like my training system that I have is going to work really well for 80% of people. It's a pretty high volume training approach, right? I'm at maximum coverable volume that they can handle for a lot of the time. Obviously we have deloads and things like that, but it's going to work really well. 20% it's not. So what happens as a coach when you're so stuck in the literature and science when that happens, yeah. right? Where like you actually find out that this person needs more or less or a situation comes up, right? So like for an example, when you look at female lifters, especially in lower weight classes, they can handle way more volume than guys can. They yep. can recover way better. And yeah, a lot is- of, that's a good point for women because it's... Yeah. Um, a lot of people don't understand that, that women actually are much more tolerable of, of, of volume than men and pain tolerances as well. That's yep. why it's so, if you don't, I follow, go follow Corny Dolwalter. She'll blow your goddamn mind, but she's, yeah. she beats men in hundred mile races and in sports, again, people might get upset, but you know, in basketball or marathons, like the guys, the best guys are going to be the best girls. And, but in ultra running, it's a bit different. And there's actually scientists, scientists have looked into this and they're trying to figure it out. And one thing that they realize is that women physiologically have better pain tolerances than men. Yeah, so for sure. Ask, I mean, ask, ask any tattoo artist, ask any tattoo artist, sorry to cut you off, ask any tattoo artist who handles tattoos the best. They're all going to say girls. Women, for um, sure. Yeah. Like I have a friend who's a tattoo artist for like 20 years and he's done a couple of tattoos for me and he says the same thing. So they've realized that they had just better pain tolerances so they can run on like really on injured legs for longer. But for back to the recovery side of things is that also you need to look at total load. So I always people get this wrong is 70% is not 70% for two different people. Right. I'll give you an example with Jordan. Okay. So his, his, an average workout of his is a, is four sets of four or three sets of four. So not even a lot of work, but he's doing 640 pounds. Right. Right. So for someone who's max is just say 500 pounds, they're doing, you know, you're not going to have them doing a three sets of four once a week for their whole deadlift training, if they're doing, you know, 
that with four plates. That's not going right. to be you're looking at total tonnage. Exactly. So volume right. is tonnage. Sorry, the right, right, right. context. So tonnage, right? So it's like when you have 5,000 pounds of tonnage in a session for Jordan, who's moving 650 pounds, it's not the same on the body and the stress on the body of, of a female who's doing moving doing 200 pounds as an example, right? Right. So females, like I've seen this, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but I've seen females regularly doing like a workout where they're doing their power lifters and they're doing three sets on bench. And I'm like, they could probably legitimately handle like six to eight sets, you know, and be fine. So why wouldn't you? So I always have this philosophy of don't go there unless you have to go there, but also you got to find out how much they can handle. So for me, for example, as an ultra athlete with pull-ups, I'm always trying to find that next level. So when I'm peaking and I'm doing between 500 and a thousand a day, that I'm trying to actually try to get that a little bit higher and a little bit higher to find where that is. And female lifters, for an example, like we, I keep saying it, but they can handle way more. I always say if the athlete can safely and sustainable and sustainable can handle more, they should be, hand, they should be doing that work because they only yeah. have 10 years to make it happen really. Yeah. Sport, you know? Yeah. And I think it's important for everyone to understand this is all relative to goals, right? Like, like obviously yeah. my, my client, Bob, just you and I know this, but my client, Bob, who has a full-time job, he's a financial analyst and he's got four kids at home and like, yeah, like obviously he's not going to be, he's probably somebody we're looking at minimum effective dose. Yeah. 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 So the, the problem that we, that we're talking about is these coaches that are coaching high level athletes, or they take people into their hands that have massive goals. Like if somebody comes to you and goes, I want to squat 500 pounds okay, are you only going to be squatting once a week or twice a week? No, probably not. Like you're probably at least going to start three times a week, moving up to four times a week. Possibly if you really want to go down the rabbit hole of five, five times a week to every day, every week, you know what I mean? Like, so it's all the, everyone just needs to understand for the sake of this, that we're not saying that everyone needs to train their balls off or whatever. If, if you don't have balls, it's fine too. Um, but that, that, that this is relative to the context of what your goals are you know, it's a difference between somebody who's trying to break world records and, and be a world champion powerlifter versus somebody who just likes to deadlift once a week because you know, whatever, <laughs> like, well, like I, it's a I, hobby, you know, and you and me are, are similar. Like, so one thing that I've done recently is I've expanded my business to people outside of just powerlifters. So I have an app, well, a client I'll say, uh, this guy owns like four houses. He's making like 160 K a year. He's got a family. He just, he's lost. He's got out of shape. And he's always be in good shape. He just wants a three day week program, you know, where he's lifting hard and getting back in shape. And I have another guy, it's crazy because he's from Canada, but he got into Stanford for aerospace engineering. So, I mean, he's pretty goddamn busy getting his PhD in aerospace. So like, he's like, I can only train this amount. What can we do? Right. So right. Uh, yeah, but I think we're talking about definitely like athletes who are trying to get better. Even if you're a novice athlete or like an amateur yeah. athlete, well, how do you go from amateur to pro or amateur? You know what I mean? Like you got to work more, you got to figure it out. You got to get more work yeah. in. And I think that like you said about the blue collar thing, right. As uh, guys working full-time jobs is that I always try to tell my athletes like in a respectful way of like, there is someone right now who has a far worse situation in their day to day in life or whatever that are also training more than you and not complaining about fatigue. And I, mm-hmm. the one thing that I post the most that I get the most hate on is fatigue is in the mind. So I understand I'm not an idiot that there's physiological fatigue, of course, right. not ridiculous, but you can, like I said, through dopamine and other methods, you can dissipate that fatigue through your mind. Right. So like 
the, like some of the training, my regular training days and people ask me like how I'm able to do that day in and day out is because I personally don't, I don't even acknowledge accept fatigue as a possibility. Like when I'm training, like I don't like that doesn't even now it's built in my mind, but if it does start to creep in a little bit, I don't even, I'm just like, that's not, I'm not, I don't get tired. I say that in my head all the time. Like I'm not tired. I'm good. Um, so anyways, yeah, I think that most athletes that I see anyways, and especially cause I have, I've had a couple athletes that have hired me and it's funny. I had one athlete, he went to worlds before he worked with me as a sub junior when he was 18, but he ended up hiring me because he was training beside one of my athletes at a gym and he was going in the gym. He was doing one top set on squat. And then he was doing like back down doubles with 50% of his max. I didn't understand it. And then would go home. And then he would see the other athlete hammering like squat deadlift bench in the same day, four five, six working sets. And he's like, what are you guys, what are you doing? And, and then, then she was like, Oh, this is my coach. And then like, this is his athletes. And he, the reason why he hired me wasn't necessarily that he had full faith that I'd get him better results, but just because he wanted to train hard. And I think that athletes who are aspiring to be really good at their sport are, they want to train hard. They, they yeah. want to be working. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's always, especially with athletes in my experience, it's, it's the management of where we're going to put this work, right? Like for instance, working with just because of ATG and the exposure we had to so many different athletes, they're just putting a lot of effort in the wrong places. You know, a, a basketball player needs to put more effort in basketball. You need to be dribbling, shooting as much as possible, you know, reading playbooks, studying your opponents, whatever. But what most coaches will do is they're going to, they're going to run a lot. They already run a lot. Why do they need to run more? You know, a game or two, those guys are in shape. So maybe you need to run a little bit before the season starts, but a game or two, those guys are in shape or they feel like they need to be lifting like professional bodybuilders. And they, you know what I mean? So it's just the, the priority of training. gets really skewed, which as a coach, that's your responsibility to determine if, if you're a power athlete and you're training strength sports, majority of your time is going to go into strength sports and, and, and lifting those lifts and things like that. So it, it all adjusts again, it's all based on the individual, their goals, yada, yada, yada. But you know, well, I love it, people don't shit on me because people ask me if I teach Olympic lifts to, to athletes, I'm like, not really, unless you're an Olympic lifter. Well, why not? Because it takes so much skill to learn an Olympic lift that what is an Olympic lift really going to offer to a, a baseball player that, you know what I mean? Like Nothing. you think Babe Ruth wasn't doing fucking snatches and cleaning jerks. <laughs> I mean, he's like, the, he's, he's the babe, man. You know, like, I mean, it's probably a bad example. Cause I'm, you know, athletically he's, I'm sure he would be not really in comparison to a lot of the athleticism that, that modern baseball players have. But the point is that you have to put the energy in the right place, you know, especially as an athlete. And that's going to, that's going to change depending on what your, your sport is. But a lot of team sport athletes, I am trying to get minimum effective dose in the weight room and is make it as efficient as possible. So you can spend more time doing your sport. Well, for example, for me, okay. I'll, I'll use me as an example than athletes. I'm so happy you brought this up because this is one of my biggest rants. All I go on all the time is that, okay. So for me, right. Is that we understand the aerobic system can be developed through increasing our heart rate to a certain amount for a certain amount of time. Right. It's so for me to, to be competitive in running, I realized that because I'm not a lifelong runner, my body can't handle running hundred miles a week. It just, it just can't. And I'm you, as you know, from what I said in this call, I'm a savage, but one, one thing I realized is that I can get on that bike and that's a way I can get an extra three hours a week. But one thing that I learned is that I went 
I started off doing five hours on the bike. It's like lower I mean, impact on the joints. So much lower impact. It's, yeah. Yeah. People are going to get upset, but again, I call it free fitness because I'm, when I'm on the bike, Boo-hoo. I know boo-hoo. <laughs> heart rate, still heart rate, cardiovascular, <laughs> you know, cardiovascular is still cardiovascular. It's like people are just, whatever. Yeah. People, yeah I, I don't, yeah. Everyone, everyone is so goddamn horny about sports specific training right now. It drives me nuts. It drives me. Oh, for sure. And, and so, and I, this is going to be a good tangent. You'll like, you can't, you can't become a better runner by doing biking. Yeah. Yeah. You can, <laughs> yeah. No, you can do it by swimming too. If you want, you know what I mean? You can even do it in the weight room. Yeah. It's just, yeah, exactly. Anyways. Now, are you obviously going to, like you said, there's a hierarchy of priority, right? So are you obviously going to prioritize running more? Sure. Of course. Right. You're never going to be a great runner unless you run. But that being said, it's like, if we look at like the aerobic system, if I can only handle just say 60 miles a week in running, that's all my body can handle. Well, one thing I realized is that if I add in an extra, th- you know, three hours of biking, my running gets better because my aerobic system is getting better. Like, right. So, but my example there is that when I started, cause this is, I'm an extremist. So when I started to get in on the bike, I had no biking experience and I was doing like five, six hours a week on the bike and it was impacting my running quality. So I was like, well, that's no, that's, that's really dumb. Cause I'm a runner. So I brought down to the MEV, like we talked about the minimum effective dose on biking to keep my running where it is. And when right. I go to, when I go to powerlifting, I see this all the time and it drives me bananas. So there's all these trends that you see that happen online. And then people follow these trends because maybe it's a really good athlete who's just going to respond well to anything. But it's like, you know, I see these like powerlifters that are doing like five second eccentric squats, pausing in the hole for three seconds. And I'm like, like, you're just wasting that session outside of like an injury or something where you could just be getting better at your sport. So I'm not saying there's not a time for variations because there can be, but right. are you going to take a guy who's low bar squatting three times a week every for a year versus a, his twin? That's only low bar squatting once a week. And the other two sessions, he's doing some weird squat variation, you know? So it's yeah. like, you need to prioritize your sport specific movement over everything. So with powerlifting, I see it's one of the worst sports for this where athletes are like low bar squatter squatters in competition, but they're only low bar once a week and they're high bar twice a week. It's like, well, like Steph Curry is not shooting a tennis ball to get better at shooting a basketball, <laughs> no. you know, like so for, me, for example, I'll tie in, point. Work, right. So I'll tie into your work. Right. So that's how my athletes is that my athletes, no matter how great your work is as powerlifters, they're never just going to go into a, a gym and go, Hey, I'm going to work on my ATG split squat or my Jefferson. Right. They're going to go in and they're going to do their comp squats and their deadlifts and get their work in. But what I've done is the accessory work, right? So this is something that I've done following your work. that's really helped my athletes. Uh, and a couple of them wanted me to, to thank you for it, but they, instead of doing like your typical, you know, rear elevated split squat and your four sets of horizontal and vertical rows and pull downs. We've now subbed that workout for getting more strength and and greater ranges and flexibility work. So they're still getting their bread and butter squat, low bar content, all that volume and work that's getting you 99% of your progress as an athlete, pretty or whatever, 90%. And they're supplementing with like things that get better hip ability. Right. And I made a post on this a couple of days ago but you'll find this crazy is that the amount of power lifters that can't sit in a 90, 90 position with their back against the wall without excruciating cramping in their hip. You know what I mean? So it's like, but we're such a hip dominant athlete. And I wanted your opinion on this, but we're such hip dominant athletes. Like you should have a baseline ability in your hips 
uh, that like a child can, you know what I mean? So, yeah. um, but that being said, back to, I guess, the original point of specificity, like you said, is like, we've gone in this place where we're just following all these trends. And my mentor is always like, we know what's, we know the last 50 years, like we've seen the best powerlifters and athletes, like we know yeah. what works. You know, it's like, do your sport, do yeah. it a lot. And the last one I will say on this before you'll, for is uh, Steve Bagnus. Like I reference him a lot, but I think he's one of the best coaches in the world. He's a like an Olympic level running coach, but actually an NFL team hired him uh, in 2017 for their conditioning. So they bring him in and you see all these strength and conditioning coaches online. They have their, they have an NFL guy on one leg on a BOSU doing bicep curls with like water. Like it's just like, yeah. it doesn't do anything, but the <clears throat> Joel Steven. <clears throat> Yeah, that's him. That's that's one of the guys. Yeah. So, <laughs> so they get um, so he goes in, right? They pay him obviously a bunch of money or whatever. And he gets these guys, he realizes that, okay, so what system are they doing in, in football? Well, they're they're pretty they're very anaerobic. They're doing four second bursts at max, and then they have to recover for 40 seconds. That's their sport. So what he did is he got hired, he wiped out all of their fancy blah 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 blah. All he did from the start of the offseason to the getting ready for season is he got them running, just for easy numbers, he got them running 10 60-yard sprints, like pretty much as close to all out. And then you would rest for a full recovery, four minutes. And then over time, you run the same amount of sprints, same volume, and he would just bring down the recovery time. Yeah. Well, that team actually was the Philadelphia Eagles that won a Super Bowl that year, and their head coach said that they're in the best shape they ever were in. But he got pushback at first, like, what? We're paying you all this money, and all you're doing is just making them do, like, this simple workout? Yeah. But again, like, to, to the last point on this is that I do believe if you're obviously healthy, that like 90% of your weekly training volume should be your sport specific movement. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, go on. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think that, I think that there has been this trend to sort of make the primary and tertiary work primary or the secondary and tertiary work primary, which I think can be used as a state of regression for people who haven't honestly just spent enough time on that area to begin with. Um, but at some point it's only going to do you more of a service to go back to the stuff that we know works. You know, like I, I get that it's hard to market stuff that's been successful for a long time. And then we know that works. And then of course it's appealing to market stuff that seems cool and whatever. And, and, you know, but at the end of the day, I just, it's just not my opinion that those things will last. I mean, it, it's, it, it says more to me that you can squat every day, bilateral high bar back squat healthy than having to come up with some other variation because, you know, like you're just kind of skirting around the real issue. Um, but I guess my point in saying that is, is, yeah, we've, we've had almost the best training information we could possibly have the past anywhere from 50 to 80 years. And we're not going to learn much more, you know, it's for a lot of reasons. One, we don't really have like the communist Soviet sort of, you know, well, I mean, we kind of do, but you know, it's just harder to, to get that sort of information now because the Soviets did do all their testing on their high level athletes. You're not, you can't get that now. You know, you, the, the Bulgarians, we got all of their high, you know, we got all the stuff from the top, top, top guys. It's just, it's just impossible to do anymore. Like you said, because it's just, it's so disruptive and because, you know, it's so disruptive to them and whatever. And it's funny because it, it, it is hilarious to me how earlier you mentioned that like a, a, a study is not 16 people. 
right? But somebody will take a study of these 16 people in bad context about stretching over somebody who has literally had their hands on improving thousands and thousands of people's flexibility and go, well, this study says this. So, you know, these 16 people, this tells me way more than, than you who's, who's probably coached 5,000 people through, you know, through flexibility. And even the other day when I did, I did a poll about this whole using weight to just get deeper in range of motion, right? 95% of people said it didn't work for them. 4,000 people answered that poll. That's a pretty damn big significant number to be pulling information from, you know, is it, is it a controlled setting and you know, whatever? No, but almost no study is. And you would think if it, if it was even remotely true, it wouldn't have been a, a, a nine and a half to a 0.5 ratio or a nine to one ratio. You know what I mean? It would have been somewhere in the middle or it would have been the other direction, but it literally 90% of those 4,000 people said, no, this shit did not work for me. So, so how people can even just even claim that it works like that, take all the science and the research and the literature out of it. And again, this is why objective evidence is okay. You know what I mean? If you're in a court of law, and you have video evidence of the suspect walking up to somebody and shooting them. You saw it with your own eyes. You have the information. You can see the guy in the courtroom and go, yep, that's the guy right there. You don't have to understand the science of all the shit in the, in the, in the evidence extraction and, and all these different things to know that look, that dude walked over there and shot him. I saw him on camera. Like it literally happened. Right. So People need to trust object, you know, objective evidence and data because it's, you're always, especially as a coach, and this is why I tell people it's important to track data on your clients, on yourself. You have to. Because that is evidence. And it's going to provide you more evidence and information and data than any study, than anything. And, you know, it's funny you know, obviously I learned a lot from Charles Poliquin and Charles Poliquin was ridiculed for so many years for some outlandish ideas and saying some crazy things and whatever. But the one thing I realized is this dude tracked fucking everything. He tracked everything. He had numbers of every lift of every weight of every set he, the mood of the individual that day, the blood labs of every three months, the food that was going like, he had every metric under the sun measured. If you go and look at the information, you, you can't argue it. Right. And, and I, to, to, to kind of bring it back is even in the beginning why I said, people need to keep logs as an athlete. You need to take logs for yourself as a coach. You need to keep logs on your clients and on your athletes, because there is going to come a time where somebody's going to go show me the money. If you don't have anything to show for it, of course, you're going to get questioned. But if you can pull those logs out and say, here they are right here. And people go, they're going to go, oh, wow. Okay. Well, you know, they're not going to have anything to say. Like, no, oh, I, I guess it worked. <laughs> no, I agree with you hundred percent. And I, one thing I loved that we did is that I won't say their names, but it was me and three other coaches. And we were just like messaging or whatever. And between the three or sorry, the four of us we're well over like thousands of athletes and some world champions, national record holders, um, champions, etc., And we pulled the data of the average bench volume of someone that can bench 300 pounds. Okay. And the average bench volume of, of a man between, uh, the 74 and the 93 weight class was about 20,000 pounds a week. 
Like that's a really good data collection yeah. of like thousands of athletes, real world experience of high level coaches with athletes that can bend in 300 pound bench, like in the powerlifting world, like maybe not be like elite, but, no, for but, me, but think about a guy that, that's a pretty good, I mean, that's a good bench. And that's between being 163, you know, for the average adult male, it's going to be one and a half times body weight. That's, I mean, that's a little more than one and a half times body weight. That's going to be, that's a pretty good bench, man. That's a good bench. Right. And yeah. it's like, well, there's 20,000 so pounds. So it's like all my athletes that are under 20,000, I'm not insane where I'm going to just jack it up. But my goal is to always get them, for example, to 20,000, because I know between the four of us that pull all that data, that for whatever reason, we can't explain it in science, but like right. that 20,000 pound mark a week for tonnage, for whatever reason, is that sweet spot. And I swear to God that every single time I get an athlete that finally gets that 20K mark, their bench, like I had an athlete recently, his bench progressed faster in a shorter amount of time, like in six months than in the previous two years. And I looked at it and I said, what's the difference? Well, he actually hit like 22,000 pounds a week. So I don't know what it is, but again, that's to your point of like Charles Poliquin is like, there is, and who cares? <laughs> I mean, some people might care, but who really cares? Like you got them there. Cool. About, I care about winning. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. like, I'm not trying to be like an egotistical idiot, but like, or arrogant about it. But like, you know, it's like when me, even Charlie Francis, you know, he was famous. He was famous for quoting research is just there to prove that, you know, prove what I did worked or was right or whatever. Like, you know, I think that's, I've talked about it before. That's kind of the cool thing about working with coaches that are work with athletes that have quarterly half year, you know, Olympic strength athletes and stuff like that, because the training approach is so different from training like team athletes and stuff, you know, because you're going to have your athletes for years and years and you're setting your sights on the future and the competitions and not just this year, but next year and the year after that and, and, and on and on and on. And it's just so different. It's just so different. Well, the interesting thing that I, that I have coming up um, once the world goes back to normal is if one of the guys moves up in a different weight class, I don't want to get like hate for this, but if, I think he is. And if he does, I'm going to have the number one and number two guy guys rank guys in the 93 kg junior weight class in Canada. Right. Oh. So it's the number one and two guys and their numbers are so close. Right. So like our goal with my goal with those athletes, it's not to, it's not necessary. It's always like big picture. Like, of course we want to like do really well at your next provincial meet. Right. But it's like, I'm setting things up for like a year training plan. So like provincials is the B and nationals is the A. So at provincials, of course we want to do really well and whatever, but I'm never going to sacrifice the B for the A. You know what I mean? So right. it's, and then an example is, um, this is more common in endurance, but I'll give you an example is like, so if I'm going to do to say a 50 miler about five or four or five weeks out, I'll do my last very big long run, which is usually like 30 miles. Well, that distance is so long. I'm going to hop into a, just a race, right? Well, during that race, I'm not actually hammering for those 30 miles. You know what I mean? Cause I still got to run that 50 miler, but I want to like get the long work in. So if I'm in that race and I know someone I could, I could definitely beat is beating me. I don't have that ego because I know that it doesn't matter because that's just a regular season game. Right. Well, let's get to the playoffs. You know what I mean? And, right. and another, I guess, example I could use is like when you look at LeBron and I'm like the biggest LeBron guy and I study his game a lot, he is so good at managing energy in a game. Yeah. So even like when his team is shooting free, even throws, within a season, within a season. I mean, yeah. yeah. Game, For sure. Within a season, but more so within a, a game. Yeah. 
So like one thing I've noticed that he does, and I've noticed a lot of other good players have taken this on, is that when his team is shooting free throws, right? You got three guys in the key and then two guys outside of the three-point line. So he actually just stands, walks slowly and stands back at the net on defense. Well, why? Because it sounds ridiculous, but off the rebound, he's saving some energy from having to run back. And you know what I mean? So he's yeah. just time. So again, yeah, I but that's, that's why he gets so much flack, you know, against the people that compare him to Michael Jordan. Cause everyone's like, Michael Jordan was always all out all the time. And Michael Jordan even said, like, I was all out all the time. Everybody, oh, whatever. He had a nine year prime in LeBron. You know what I mean? So it's, um, it's interesting. And, and you see it on, you see it. My best example was the uh, golden state warriors the year after they won the 73 games and they got Durant. Everyone was like, oh, they're going to win like 76. I'm like, no, they're not. And there was definitely games in the regular season they clearly took off. When they got they got beat that year, I remember one time by Sacramento by 20, and everyone lost their minds. I'm like, do you think they were playing? Like, if they wanted right. to get – if they showed up and were like, guys, we're going to go all out, they're going to beat Sacramento by 30 points in the first half, right? So, like, saving energy. I guess that's a different ramp. But, no, I agree with you on a lot of this stuff. It's um, – experience is – way more important in coaching in my experience. And I, my best one, I guess I'll leave it on for this topic. Sorry, turn it back to you is Bill Belichick. And I, if you look it up, right, type in Bill Belichick's education. Okay. So he has a major in economics. He doesn't have a single coaching certification. I'm not devaluing that stuff, but I'm saying, you know what I mean? So he figured out a system in a way to coach athletes and get a certain result. And it's so weird that these coaches are doing all these trends when it's like, you know, we know what works. Squat, deadlift and bench a lot. Do it for a long time. Six months is not a long time, okay? A year right. is not a long time. Right, like, right, right, right. like, do it for at least two or three two years. Two or three years, uh, yep. And then maybe maybe it's like, all right, we got to make some changes, you know? And I've done that with certain athletes where I've made a big change, and it's, but it's very rare, though, because most of my athletes that train really hard don't get injured and are very specific just continually keep growing. No, that's really cool because, you know, I don't – like I've studied powerlifting and powerlifters and, you know, obviously Louis Simmons and Boris Shako and guys like this. And so I, I understand a lot of the training concepts and I've, I've studied a lot of the training and just the methods and, and these things, but I, I'm not involved in powerlifting in any way. Like I, I have no, I don't even think I've ever trained a powerlifter. Oh, you really? Know, everything, in, everything in the United States is, um, is sports, you know, football, baseball, basketball, and, and now with CrossFit, you're, you're starting to get, you work, you train with CrossFit or you work with CrossFitters and weightlifters and, and I guess some powerlifting, but no, nothing like nothing professional. So it's really cool to see this side of it and kind of get some insight into you and them and how you train and, and the level that you train them at, because it's something that I'm not, I've, I've never really, I don't think ever worked with one, to be honest with you. Um, yeah, sorry. No. Yeah. So that's it. I mean, I just have it. It's pretty the cool. Is interesting because how do I say this respectfully? And because I know people get really upset about this, but training powerlifting is one of the easier sports to program for. And I do this for a living. So like, I'm not devaluing the craft. I'm, this is what I do, but it's because you have three exercises with a lot less variables. So and training an NBA player would be way harder because there's strength and conditioning. There's the cardio part of it or endurance part of it. There's the game. Like there's so much like the, yeah, athlete, yeah, yeah. So one of my best friends is a high level wrestling coach. And it's so hard to like seeing them Kim coach and those guys is like, they're doing three a days. Like it's, it's like, look at an MMA fighter, right? They have a guy who does the striking coach and the guy who yada, yada, yada. Like it's hard. Yeah. There's so many different coaches. They give a whole team. 
Cause they have, there's just so many different things that have to be trained. Yeah. Totally different things and uh, powerlifting. I feel the biggest area of opportunity that I see in a lot of new coaches. And the reason why I took on an intern, cause I wanted him to get the bet. Like I wanted him to get like, to avoid that, that uh, rabbit hole of like trying all these different modalities. And it's like, no, like we know, like you said, 50, the last 50, 80 years, what works really well, you know, be, is it specific? Is it measurable? Is it progressive? Is it sustainable? Right. train really hard, try to find what their maximum recoverable volume they can handle is be specific and do that for a while and see what happens. And 90% of the time, like when I talk to those four coaches, like I said, between the four of us, world champions and, and, and thousands of um, athletes, we always say is like pretty much like 80 to 90% of all powerlifters respond so, so well to what I just said. And then there's like that 10% where you got to figure is, is a bit harder, but it's like a lot of coaches are doing the programming that only works for the 10% and not the 90, you know? Right. So it's uh, and I'll use one good example. Cause people like this one a lot. So the Jordan, right. The guy who pulled 765, he only deadlifts three to four sets a week, once a week. And in the powerlifting world, like most people are doing twice a week on deadlifts and they're doing just a lot more work than that. And people were kind of shocked by that because I actually brought him back. So he was doing twice a week with 25,000 pounds of volume. He went to once a week and only like five to 8,000 pounds of volume. Hmm. And I did an experiment and he went from 765 to 765 in a year. And by doing that, now people will see that and they're just going to run with it. Right. Like, wow, this elite guy went to this and did this. And I'm like, and I always tell people one-on-one, I'm like, do not do this. If you have a 200 pound man, who's deadlifting five to say five, 600 pounds, you, if he can do twice a week and a lot of volume, like you got to be hammering that. Right. So there's like that anomaly, but it's like, you know, Oh, one last thing I want to, on that topic, I want to say that I really love the most on this is that Strava is like with the most used app for tracking running and etc so strava actually did something so boston qualifying for the boston marathon is like the big thing right if you're not an elite runner it's something that can get you into that one percent status so you have to run a th- for a man it's a three-hour marathon so that's uh seven seven twenty a mile ish wow. for thir- uh 26 miles it's a lot it's fast and they pulled data and they realized that the average weekly volume, and this is like 10,000 or 20, I think it was like 10 or 20,000 male runners. That's a huge number. Yeah. Not 16. Um, that is, <laughs> or 12. Uh, 12 <laughs> or <yeah>. six. <laughs> I've seen more. Yeah. Um, and their average weekly training volume to, to run sub three was 60 miles a week. So it's like, if you want to run a Boston qualifier time, it's pretty obvious from that data that if you're not at 60 miles, unless you're like, there was a small percentage that could run less than that. And there was a small percentage that had to run more than that. And that's my example of the 90, 10% thing in powerlifting. It's like, well, we know if you get to 60 miles a week and you're running that consistently for the say, you have a running background, obviously, but if you've been running that consistently for a while, you have a really, really good chance to run sub three. So good luck trying to do 30 miles a week, unless you're talent. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, um, that's a good point. That's a really good point. Yeah. And it's, I love information. I love data. It's, it's, it's fun looking at that stuff and, and people don't analyze it enough, you know, to really get the clear picture and from a big enough pool. Um, yeah, it just, was a it's, bigger pool than who has it. Like, this is the thing, right. That you kind of mentioned on this is that like, for example, Charles Poliquin gets all this kind of hate sometimes, but it's like, 
it's like, okay, so what doesn't get hate is a, is a peer reviewed study case study of 12 athletes, no criticism. Right. Okay, a coach that has, you know, Olympic gold medals and his coach just say 10,000 athletes. Right. Criticism. It's just mind boggling to me where it's like, yeah. How, where's the critical thinking that we have here on this? Like, why isn't it doesn't like, exist? You know, and <laughs> like, we look at like, um, like when I had the internship, we look at the strength guys, right? Like they're one of the three most winningest uh, brands in powerlifting in the world. But if you go to a meet, it's like, like I, at Canada nationals, like they clean it up. They cleaned up and it's like, well, what are their athletes doing? Well, they're, again, they're very specific. They're training with a shit ton of volume and they're working really goddamn hard. And then you have these other coaches that are trying to like, you know, get really good athletes and they're, they're, they're doing like two or can you squat? Like, I think it's almost every day. Right. So it's like, yeah. Like, do you think like, it's like, imagine being like, oh, I'm going to squat to the level that you're squatting at, but I'm only going to do it twice a week. Like, it just doesn't make any sense to me. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. They're just, it's just. It just won't, it just won't happen. I mean, look, I'm not by any means like a high level squatter, you know what I mean? Like, but, but just to be able to do it every day and the amount of volume I put on a squat, probably just the past seven or eight months alone is probably way more than what people put in in a year and it will pay. I mean, my legs have definitely paid off, but yeah, you're huge. You're like, overall, like I'm like 218 right now. And, And my goal is to squat 500. That's my goal. I don't, I don't really have any need to go beyond that. Um, 500 all the way down. And also into, do a front split cold though, right? So it's... Um, yeah, yeah. So just kind of like this weird dichotomy of like <laughs> physical feats, right? Because just because that that has kind of been my message that I've kind of been pushed into, but if, if finally accepted is, is that I do like this idea of these opposing qualities and being able to not necessarily master both, but display both at a high level, you know, cause I'm not squatting 300 kilos, like, you know, Toshiki or Clarence, and I'm not pause squatting front pause front squatting 240 like Klokov or anything like that. But, um, for a guy that's just a, a guy who's a coach and a trainer and is 30 years old and is not, you know what I mean? It's for me, it's, it's plenty, you know, and I love it. You know, no. I love it. And there's definitely two things that I never come to these free form conversations with like exact plans. Of course, we've just been flowing. There's two things that I definitely wanted to touch on for sure. And one of them was my experience. I think your listeners should hear this from your work. So I had this aha moment that happened literally three weeks ago. So my training is very simple. I have a baseline run every single day, same around six to 10 miles, nothing crazy, like seven fifty to eight minute mile pace, just super cruising. And then once a week I, I send it. Right. So, but I don't like, I have data, but I don't actually turn my heart rate on when I'm running. Like I don't train off that. I train off just my own effort. I don't even look at it. Right. Um, I just look at it after. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go to a track. I'm going to run comfortably hard. I'm not going to like send it like a 10 K race pace, but I'm going to just run comfortably hard. And I looked at all my data after I couldn't believe it. I was like shot i was running uh just over six i ran i ran just over i was running i think i gotta do the conversion but i was about 620 a mile for um for 30 minutes and which i think is pretty fast like it's i'm not an elite runner but i think 620 miles to do that for most people aren't running that i mean the majority of people they're not running that (laughs) you're still in like a fifth percentile you know what i mean (laughs) it was a it was like a it was a five miles at that pace and I was looking that same 
perceived effort and heart rate just three weeks prior. So not like I got magically that much more fitter was, I think it was like 20 to 30 seconds slower a mile. And I was thinking about a couple of things. And then one thing I looked at that you'll like is that I looked at my cadence and my cadence at those paces is usually like over 200. And my cadence was like less than 190. Oh, wow. So my stride length, because length. I've been working and hammering, like I'm saying, like I'm going crazy with this, man. Like I'm doing extension work um, through passively stretching and loading. I sit on my fucking um, floor every night for an hour. I do the uh, wall stretch with my ab, like for my abductors. Like I'm just, okay. right? So I learned through this is that I have increased my stride length so much that in my own anecdotal opinion, that I was just covering so much more ground per step, but my heart rate was the same and I was running so much faster. So by your work, I become such a more efficient runner that on my normal days now, I have to literally tell myself to slow down because my stride has gotten so much longer with no restriction though. Because before when I was going to hip extension, I was getting restricted. So my cadence was like a lot shorter, but now at the same paces, my cadence has gone down to like a bit lower because I'm able to effortlessly be in better range. Right. Right. Um, That was one that I wanted to touch on from your work, from my own experience. And to thank you on that, but that was, uh, that's really cool to hear. That was like a really cool. Cause a lot of people shit on improving range of motion for running. (laughs) Like, and and I'm not necessarily saying that long distance runners need splits. Right. But I am saying that it's not going to kill you to work on some flexibility and make sure that you just have basic function of the hips well i mean it's a hip dominant sport you know no yeah and and my thing is too is that it's easy for to get really good range for running when you're running really fast but most of us like aren't running six minute mile paces for our regular or 630 mile paces for our regular runs like like elite marathoners are right it's sort of like sprinting you know a, a lot of your shorter distance sprinters are way more opened up than your longer distance because it's how you cover, it's how you cover the distance. You know what I mean? It's just the stride is so long and powerful that you have to, you know what I mean? So yeah, you're, yeah, for sure. I I definitely see that. I could see that for sure. Like I said, a huge difference. And I, I'm not big on this whole world. We don't talk about running too much, but like, I'm not big on this. Like, Oh, you have to be at the magical 180 cadence. I'm like, well, what if you're like Ben Connor runs a 209 marathon and he's at like 170. Okay. Like, so you know what I mean? So, but I think though for me and my thinking on my own self is that if i'm running at the same data so the same heart rate and the same perceived expert which i always train off of so i have a very for years so i have a very good concept of that but now i'm running the same efforts same heart rate but i'm running faster my stride length is longer it just doesn't make it's not rocket science to figure out that it's really helped my running right and i'm a power i was a really tight power lifter that couldn't even like touch his toes so I'm obviously an example, extreme example where I'm, I'm so limited in my hips. And now, I mean, you've seen, I maybe a video of my ATG splits, but like, I'm not like you by any means, probably never will be, but I'm, I'm, I would say at least 10 times better than I, than I was even a year ago. So it's really helped. No, that's then, awesome to hear. Have you, uh, how far are you from like Nova Scotia? I know nothing about Canada. So you have to forgive uh, my no, ignorance. I'm like a, I'd be like a, like a three to four hour flight. Okay. All right. I'm a, my buddy Lucas Aaron is in in Nova Scotia. Why do you say that? Because Lucas Aaron and he a, used to be a powerlifter. Well, he trains at the same gym that my 19 year old who squats 600 trains at. How oh, really? At um uh, Prime Strength Club or whatever it's called. I was sending 
That's hilarious. His name is Dry- Andrew Drysdale. And I was sending him some of your stuff because I'm getting him to work on some range stuff. Right. Um, it was just to help. And then he saw on your post, Lucas, and he DM me Lucas's profile. And he goes, this guy trains at my gym. And I'm like, that. I've listened to some of Lucas's stuff. He seems like he knows what he's doing. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. He was so also a, he was a competitive powerlifter as well, which is pretty funny how it all comes full circle there. But yeah. That was, yeah, that's a really full circle moment. And then the one thing I want to touch on too, uh, that I want to definitely bring up is the exposure. So for the mental side of stuff, and it's crazy now because I never thought I'd get to this point where I'm doing like mindset consultations with athletes. And one thing that I always talk about, even this can relate to volume, but exposure is so important. So you can't ever increase your threshold without ever going to that threshold, in my opinion. And this, especially mentally. So it's like, I do this thing. I did this thing last winter where I ran once a week. I ran a half marathon at 3 a.m. On a, after work, I, I was managing a restaurant at the time. So I'd work to like 3 a.m. I was on my feet the whole time. I would get off. I'd run a half marathon, get home at five and go to sleep. Wow. Well, I live in Canada. So I don't, I'm also running this, committed to running to this in blizzards. Whatever. It doesn't matter. I'm running. I'm getting this done. And that exposure, there's one run, and I was funny, I was coaching at a powerlifting meet all day in Toronto, drove, so I'm coaching like seven, eight athletes, super stressful, come back, I run, and it's the weather is like kind of like zero degrees, so there's a little bit of like puddles, and I remember my first couple steps, I landed in a puddle, and my foot was like freezing, and I ran, the. I still finished, and it was really, really, really bad, and I don't recommend this, by the way, for everyone listening to go do this. (laughs) This comes, this will come yeah, back. Don't like, do that. You might, your foot might fall off. We don't want that to happen. We take no medical, we take no responsibility. I think no But if you're, but by the way, if you're like an, if you're an ultra marathoner, like, you know, this is what we do. But the, the thing behind that exposure though, is that my threshold on pain tolerance and being able to grind is gotten to where it is. I wasn't always this way. So like when I, like I've, when I started running, like I would run 5k and be like, like stop halfway. And, but again, I would expose myself intentionally to harsh environments, like extreme heat, uh, sleep deprivation, um, these kinds of things to expose myself. So to be able to handle this stuff better. So that's one thing I want to talk about with athletes and maybe not the opposite of the ultra side of powerlifting or whatever is like, you definitely need times in your training where you need to expose yourself to just more training volume than even you think you can handle and even if it doesn't work it's just even just for a week or just do a session where it's just a crazy sbd session where it's like four hours long like you need that exposure at some point to be able to increase your threshold and the coolest thing about this exposure is that once you know you can do it and go there anything less feels easier right so right i think it's like mental post activation potentiation so my example is that we know that my th- maximum threshold at this point, hopefully I can beat that soon, but is the back-to-back marathons in 1,500 pull-ups in 20 hours. So people are like, well, how do you train four hours a day and do all these reps? It's like, well, my threshold is so much higher than this to right. my exposure that like, I've exposed myself to so much more extreme that the normal right. becomes um, easier. Yeah. Sense. I mean, for me, that's like when people ask me why I squat every day, it's because if I ever decide that I'm going to go back to only squatting two or three times a week, it's going to be so easy. 
like, it's gonna be totally easy, right? Or if you ever needed like a mental break, like, and again, I'm. Um, it's funny that I think it's harder for male athletes because, like, you know, alpha male and ego and things like this. But I definitely, I will never. I think you should. I'm a big believer of like the psychology. Obviously, like when you have anxiety, the best or if you're afraid of an elevator, the best thing to do is exposure to lean into that to right. realize that it's not going to cause you harm. There's no fear here, right? Confront it. Confront it. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Exactly. So like, I'm a big fan of lean. The, the way out is the way through. That's it. So lean in, lean in. But also I'm not going to beat someone down to lean in so much time that it's just like completely crushing their life and their soul. So right. there, so for example, after a full season of competitions for my, like just say my high level guys, they're doing, you know, provincial meets, national meets and traveling, lots of pressure and et cetera. Like we'll do a, a training block where maybe they're only competition squatting once a week. And I'm like, dude, go do it. Go do some bro days. Go do some cardio. Go do rock climbing. Like, take a yeah. month. Like, you're still getting some training in, but it's like a mental reset. So I think, like, even me, like, I'm a savage, but I definitely have moments. It's like a I pure deload. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I, but I always say, don't go there unless you have to go there. You know, like if you're not really burnt out, or and I also think most people use burnout as like, like you said, it's I mean, an excuse. Excuse. Yeah. Like I'm burnt out. I'm like, no, you're probably just a little bit tired than normal grind through, you know, it's like, yeah. and I'm not trying to devalue anyone who's listening. Who's like, well, I've, I've been in that situation, but it's like, you know, someone told me this is that made a lot of sense. Is like someone's reaction to my crazy training and them saying, or whatever they're saying, like, is a, is their own ego and insecurity that they're not willing to put in that kind of work. Right. Yeah. So, um, and also someone's opinion of me is not my responsibility. Like that's your own complex and your own ego that you've made up and you have two options, right? So if you're trying to get really good at pull-ups and you see me working, you can hate on me or you can use that as inspiration. So I look at, okay, let's look at um, the strength and range stuff, right? I could look at you and be like, Oh, look at this fucking guy, you know, doing, he can do the splits and I can, he's like all this blah, 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 right. or I can, use you as a source of inspiration, which I have, which has increased my athletic ability and now has me on a podcast with you. So I guess that's like a philosophical message to athletes of like, you know, checking that ego and like using, using people that are really good at their craft for, I guess it's the way to off track from exposure, but as inspiration, I think that's super important. And then I guess I'm all over the place, but to go back to the exposure side is that, I mean, it fits though, because if you think about it, most people are unwilling to expose themselves to new things and then they just write it off as it doesn't work. It's the same with flexibility. I can't tell you how many arguments I've gotten with people who's never actually tried it, but they swear to God, it doesn't work or they swear it makes you slower. Or they swear it makes you weaker. It's like, have you ever even tried? Have you ever stretched? And a lot of times, no. So then, like, well, you've never even, ex if you could go, yeah, I did. I gave it a solid try. I stretched X amount of hours for this many months and I didn't get any flexible. Or I didn't feel better. Or I didn't, whatever. Then I'd go, okay, man. But I've never had a conversation with somebody ever. It's always, I did. And they read the rewards from the benefits of it and blah, blah, blah. Or I've never done it at all. Or, and even if you go, oh, I used to stretch for, you know, 15, 20 seconds after well, that, that counts as never doing it at all as well, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> well, you see these like this what drives me and I, you are an expert in this and I'm not, but I, I, I'm curious on the investors that you see, like, you know, it's like you type on YouTube of like, you know, and, uh, someone that is maybe a recreational runner or something, whatever will be like, oh, my ankle hurts or my knee hurts. So let's look. And they're like, okay, well, you should stretch your quad out, which is okay, fine. But then they're like, okay, right. so you hold this stretch for 
three sets of 30 seconds and then move on. And I'm like, in my opinion, I want to actually want to ask you this question is that, and if I'm so wrong, please let me know. I want to be educated here is that I'm thinking of things to an adaptation process of flexibility of that. Okay. So just say for me, a year ago when I really started a lot of this stuff, if I'm incredibly, incredibly tight, I probably am not going to see any improvements unless I'm really, if I'm holding a couch stretch for five minutes or 10 minutes or yeah. uh, you know what I mean? Or more like, but then, but then if I do, and maybe I'm wrong here, but maybe now that I've, I have pretty good range in my hip flexor, maybe now I don't need to do 10 minutes every day. Maybe it's correct. only two minutes. Is that correct? Yeah. So, so basically I, it's funny that you asked this because I, I kind of went into this a little bit today in my stories on Instagram, right. Is you, you basically have what is called the, the Golgi tendon organ, right? And, and basically its job is to send a message to the brain to get you to relax the agonist muscle that you're stretching to allow for further range. This specific reflex also inhibits the stretch reflex, which is done by the muscle spindle, which will actually contract the muscle to protect it from going into a further range. Now, the interesting thing about, you know, the, the, the Golgi tendon organ, the GTO, uh, for short, cause it's just a funny word to say, but, um, is that the amount of time, the amount of time it takes for people to get it, to activate can differ significantly from person to person. And there's a couple of variables that will impact that, Ex you know, number one is going to be experience. People who have been stretching for a while can get the muscle to relax a lot faster than people who are totally new and totally fresh to flexibility, stress levels, training history, injury history. There's so many different variables that can change that, but I've had people that can start to relax and get in deeper into a stretch with 30 seconds. I've had people that it takes five minutes. I've had people that it takes 10 minutes. So it's something that you have to almost find for yourself. And it's why in a perfect world, I wouldn't program durations for stretches because I really need people to explore and, and be kind of in tune with that and see what it takes. But it's also why when I program a lot of static passive flexibility, I always err on more than less because I have had people that message me and go, wow, it literally took me five minutes to relax. Well, imagine if I didn't tell you to do that stretch for five minutes, Will we have ever even gotten there. So there, there are, there, it varies, it varies, but I, I have found for, for I've, I've used flexibility in my sort of training and physical modalities for seven or almost eight years now. And I have find that for a lot of people, initially, you have to spend a lot of time in it. You have to spend a lot of time in it to just get the muscle to relax. Um, and, and that's just what I found. I don't no. care. I don't care that the literature says it takes seven seconds for that, that organ to, re to respond because I, I've, I know better I, because I've trained enough people to know that that's just not the case. Um, well, I didn't get flexible. I've tried to get flexible like throughout the years. I've always said it of like, Oh, whatever. And I'll do like some, like, you know, some late passive stressing, like a couple times a week after training and never did anything until I literally sat on my, I, I do, I do these things of timers. So, and I know you don't like prescribed time, but I would do like a crazy. I mean, I use prescribed time. It's just in a perfect scenario. I wouldn't, but everyone like, I mean, whatever. So, you know, so yeah. But for me, I always picked a really long time though. So I knew like it would be like 20 minutes, right. Which I think is pretty long time for a whole to stretch. 
So again, my easy example is the one where I do with my legs up on the wall, like stretching my abductors, right? Like letting them kind of sit. And I'm a measurable guy. So I have a, I have a certain wall in my house where uh, there's like a two doors side by side. So I can actually measure where my legs get. Where your feet are. Floor, right? Yeah. And I've noticed one thing, right? I want to talk through this is that every night when I go to do that stretch, my starting point is a little bit more, but not crazy. But my end point is getting way more. But, but is that because that my body by the end is at that, that tendon or organ is finally is relaxing and then it's open. Yeah. Up more. Yeah. And, and, and those, and the long-term adaptations take time. It's just like strength training, right? You don't, you don't necessarily progressively overload every time you do an exercise, right? It comes in phases and weeks and whatever. So it's the same with stretching. You know, you, you open up this range, the body's going to regress a little bit. You come and revisit it again. It opens up more. And just over time, it just opens up a little more, a little more, a little more, a little more, a little more. Um, you know, what is warm flexibility now becomes cold flexibility. It's just a process that you have to respect and understand just like strength training. You, there are, there are still physiological adaptations that you cannot speed up. You just have to respect that It takes a certain amount of time and that's what it's going to take. The interesting thing about flexibility. And it's funny to me how people say it's so unnatural because I have found that very much like cardiovascular training, it's one of the fastest qualities that you can develop in people. Developing this high level of strength is not easy to do. And it takes a very, very long time. You know, like you said earlier, really getting somewhere two to three years professionally at a high level, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 15 years of training flexibility. If you're working with me, I can get you from dog shit flexibility. Granted, you don't have any major injuries, major genetic diseases or anything like that to the splits in two years. With absolute confidence, I could take anybody there. Um, can it happen sooner for some people? Of course. You know, may it take a little longer? Maybe. But for the most, for most people, I would definitely say within a year and a half to two years, I could have probably perfect flexibility in terms of what you can anatomically display. Not everybody can display a perfect flat middle split because of hip anatomy, but most everybody can get like 170 degrees, which if you're wearing pants, no one's going to know what the difference is anyway. So who really cares? And who, and who really gives a shit? Like, it's just the fact that you can, you know, press it. Yeah. So it, it actually doesn't take a lot of time to develop. Um, well, I've noticed that. I mean, the front splits is, I think, well, definitely is like an ex the extreme range of a flexibility of a human, I think, but, and, and, one thing I've noticed with this, my, my own stretching and then doing, we're doing this work with my athletes is that we get guys that are, that can't touch their toes it, to like palms on the ground very quickly. Like it's yeah. not a very long now, again, obviously getting like, like you getting your elbows, like that's a bit different, but I think going from being like, yeah, that is a bit different. <laughs> that's, that's a bit different. Like going from like your head to your toe. Yeah. That's, that's a little different, you know? So it's like, and one of the questions I want to ask you too is like for I know you don't work with powerlifters specifically, but when you if you think about a powerlifter, like are there certain ranges that you would like standards you would want to see a powerlifter have, or would you just or would you want them just to have? Do you think it's better just to have strength expression in a greater range than their? Because when we're when we're powerlifting, by the way, like I know you're a big ATG of course, but when we're powerlifting, our regulation is your hip crease has to break your knees. So based on biomechanics, et cetera, but like we're yeah. never athletes to do a full ATG squat. 
for comp list because you don't have to go there. There's like, if you don't have to go there, don't go there. Right. But would it be beneficial for an athlete? Like I see this on sumo deadlifts a lot and it's crazy because in my opinion, most men don't deserve to sumo deadlift because they don't even have the range. Right. Like, they, like their adductor tightness is so crazy, you yeah. know? So it's like, do you think it'd be beneficial to say for a sumo deadlifter to be able to have, be comfortable in a wider sumo stance and, and then their normal sumo stance and just be comfortable in that range. Do you think that's going to help them? Yeah, I do. I, this is how I look at it. And, 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 you know, here's the thing here, people are going to say, there's no evidence that stretching helps with in, decreased injury rates and all this shit. And I'll, and I'll tell people bullshit. Like, I don't care what the literature says. I don't care what the research says. I have enough information and data anecdotal evidence, if you want to call it that, which I don't, I'm not afraid of anecdotal evidence. I, I, I'm not like, I love <laughs> like, and that's what I was trying to say earlier. I don't know what I, I think I was saying objective. I meant anecdotal, um, by the way. So people now probably understand what the fuck I was saying, but, um, I, I look at it like this, what range am I lacking? Because that's where the, the highest risk is going to be for powerlifters and ballerinas. They're going to be lacking internal rotation just because everything's so out and externally rotated. So one of the biggest qualities I want to see is some internal rotation to just restore some balance in the hip capsule. Is it going to necessarily make you a stronger power lifter? Is it going to spike your numbers up or anything? No, but it might reduce the chances that you're probably going to need a fucking hip replacement. It might reduce any sort of hip impingement or back problems or whatever. You know what I mean? From, especially powerlifters because when the hips are so turned out everything, the, the piriformis and the hip rotators get so tight and they, and they, they attach from the femur to the sacrum, everything just gets so fucking bound up in the back that when you restore some in that internal hip rotation, it just, it just gives your hips more space. So I look at what are the biomechanics of the, the sport and what are they lacking? And I just use ballet, ballet and powerlifting as two examples because they're two examples of sports that will be so externally rotated all the time that the biggest missing quality is going to be internal rotation. So I want to see them some display some capacity of internal rotation. And, and one thing that I've noticed, and again, I'm not against rounding on the deadlift by any means, but one that I've noticed is I've had a couple athletes, well, a lot, but a couple recently that do have some lumbar flexion when they're deadlifting in the conventional stance. And I've just got them to do like a simple, very simple, like sit and reach test, right? Where their range is, is laughably bad. And now that their range has definitely increased, like pretty significant, all of a sudden their deadlift technique has gotten a lot better. And again, there might not be any fucking science out there proving that, but I can say for sure, coaching athletes that getting a conventional deadlifters hamstrings more flexible yeah. as them pulling. And, and one thing I was going to say is that technique matters. And maybe you and me are going to agree that, you know, there's no bad movement, just ill-prepared bodies. But if you can work on, I guess my best example is the squat. So I have a guy with really long femurs. So when we have people with really long femurs, of course, we're going to have more forward lean. Yeah, I have guy, long femurs. When I, I have long femurs. I have, I have long legs and a short torso. Up, right? yep. but like, and so my example is that when you have guys, I have a guy right now, uh, Sebastian. So he really good deliver his squat is definitely something we need to improve more but he squats he's really long femurs he's a 
not a wide stance. I don't think we should ever be like, I think like right. this is a little bit wider than outside hips or something. Yeah. Yeah. Like just like whatever. Yeah. And one thing I realized is that as we've increased his, his dorsiflexion is so brutal, like so embarrassingly brutal. And now that his dorsiflexion is actually pretty damn good. Um, and his abductor mobility is a lot better. Um, and his, ex- sorry, external rotation as well in the hips. He's definitely 100,000% if I did a side-by-side, he is squatting so much more upright, which is just, and it's actually making him stronger because now the bar is actually way more over his mid Centered over his foot, yeah. And, if you, and I don't need a scientific literature to know that when he texts me an update and he goes, man, my squat has never felt better because I can be more upright and I can keep the bar on my midfoot. I don't need a 12K study to tell me differently. Right. Right, right, right. Not though, like if you have an athlete, because I want to ask you on that with dorsiflexion, because no one in North America, well, not a lot of people are ever being like, hey, we as a powerlifter, like on the side, we should probably work on some dorsiflexion. Like if you have bad dorsiflexion range and you increase it, your trunk angle can definitely change, right? For sure. I'm I'm told all the time. I've been told all the time that I should go wider when I squat because of my proportions but people don't take into consideration my mobility. It's very hard for people to coach me because they don't know how to coach people with a ton of flexibility. You know, a lot of people are confined to the limits of their range of motion, right? So a lot of, a lot of normal cues that people use for squatting and stuff like that don't apply to me because I can overdo it, right? Like guys, it's, you know, when you hear chest up, right? For instance, if I fucking do chest up, I'd go into a fucking back bend. You know what I mean? So I can't like, so chest up doesn't work for me. What I found is it's quite the opposite. I have to try to limit how much range that I'm getting in us in things. Um, you know, it's funny that you said that about the hamstrings because something, something very interestingly is people use metrics to prove to me that they're good. Like people will say, Oh, I mean, my hips are fine. I can deadlift however many, how much weight. And I'm like, okay, doesn't mean you're not doing it with your quads and your back and not actually using your hips and your, in your hamstrings. You know what I mean? Like just because you're executing said exercise a certain way, doesn't mean you're actually utilizing something that's going to be more efficient or less, you know, technically sound or, you know, less risk or whatever. Again, I'm not necessarily against there's actually, there's just a massive study that came out of New Zealand that talked about how much force you can produce with a rounded lumbar. So I think people are getting to the point where they're kind of over that. I mean, I I'm kind of, I guess I'm kind of getting away from your question, but no, you're good. Yeah. I mean, my dorsiflexion, I can literally squat with my feet together. Now, granted, I wear squat shoes because I'm squat. I'm high bar back squatting. Like, it's like, I'm not going to go play baseball, and not put on cleats. I'm not going to go ride my, my bike out here and not put on my clips. You know what I mean? Like I'm going to wear my, the shoe that I helps me it, do whatever. You know what I mean? I'm not going to go to the bowling alley and not wear bowling shoes. So, but even still people with squatting shoes can't squat all the way. I mean, for me, it actually becomes a tool to push the range further than it does to band-aid a range that I don't have. But for instance, I can literally squat ass to grass with my feet together and squat down. And I have long femurs and I have long tibia in a short torso. Um, so I do anecdotally believe that you can improve range and get much better positioning, no matter your anatomy. Is there gun- like, you know, you see Asian guys where their torso is literally vertical. Mine's not literally vertical, 
but I'm not 45 degrees forward. Like people say I should be squatting, you know, because of, they look at me and they go, Oh, you have long legs. You need to take your, you need to take your feet out wider and you need to sit back into it more. It's like, no, I can, I'm, I'm perfect. Like I can squat, like I'm five foot five. And <laughs> because I have the range of motion, I just, my personal opinion and professional opinion is people just do not give enough time to develop range of motion to even consider that people with the incorrect anatomy or whatever can hit positions that they want them to hit. And I have people that have used a lot of my stuff that train basketball players and stuff and have full, you know, six foot, six, six foot, seven, six foot, eight skinny basketball players squatting all the way down. These guys are the definition of long legs and long arms. And you know what I mean? So I definitely think it's, I wish people would just give it some more consideration. Um, and yeah, I, 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 of course, anatomy will play some role. I just don't think it plays as much as people think, to be honest also, with you. Why are we, why aren't we, lim- why are we limiting ourselves though? That's what I don't understand is that anatomy. Well, you're not just limiting yourself. You're also limiting your athletes. I mean, I, most of, most of what I'm trying to do is what people, other people put into people's heads, not even what they put into their heads. It's, it's what, it's who told you that it's not what conclusions did you come to as this individual who can take information in and, and make, come to your own conclusions. It's who the fuck told you that? <laughs> like almost every single scenario, who told you, you can't do that. Who told you, you shouldn't do this. Who told you such and such. That's what gives me really more answers than anything. Cause it's the one is that the, uh, I keep referencing him a lot, but I is that kid who did that big squatter that I have, right? And he actually made a post on this. And I'm he's a little he's a, he's an outspoken guy, but he was like, thanks to you know me or whatever, all the strength and range and this more mobility and flexibility that I've gotten has decreased my aches and pains and made me a better athlete. So who so try so try telling him that that stretching doesn't help reduce right, pain exactly. and injury. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I have now, and again, I will report back to you in a year from now, because this is like a newer thing for a lot of my athletes that I'm doing with them, but already I'm seeing crazy signs and progress of athletes. First of all, I've seen my athletes, a lot of them squat thousands of times. So I think I'm a pretty good judger of their squat. And I can definitely say that with improving, just even dorsiflexion has a lot of their squatting better um, better positions and the, the, the bars over their midfoot more. Right. So, and again, it's just, it's just crazy to me. I feel like every athlete in the world, whatever your sport is, should be able to just do a passive 90, 90 and not have their internal, um, their hip and internal rotation feel like it's being like torn off. You know what I mean? Or their knees going to explode. Yeah. That's, and that's really what most people feel. They get knee problems when they lose internal rotation. So it's, and I think that, and I think you're going to agree with me on this is that, like if it's a knee problem, it's usually a hip or an ankle issue. Like, you know, it's never really so. Yeah. Look, the, the knee can do two things, right? It can flex and extend. It can rotate to some degree. If you, if you're looking at the tibia, like we know the tibia can rotate, but you're talking about 45 degrees externally, 15 degrees internally. But for the most part, the knee does two things, right? Like, and that's what I get people to understand. What does your ankle do? Your ankle is a shit ton of range of motion, you know, inversion, eversion, dorsiflexion, plantar flexion, you know, what does your hip do? Externally rotates, internally rotates, flexes, extends, abducts, adducts. It's so much more that could go wrong there in both of those places than your knee. And what I have found with knees is that, and, and, and I'm kind of coming back to this, is that 
someone has made such a hellbent attack on people being so posterior chain dominant. Like everyone's accelerators are just so strong and so powerful and so whatever that it's their decelerators that are that they're screwing up on, you know, whatever the fuck that even means in the first place, but just tibia and quads aren't as strong. I've, 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 to be honest with you, I found quite the opposite. Like if you're, if we're, if we're being honest with you, I find so many people can access their quads way better than they can access their glutes or hamstrings. Tell somebody what it's like to get their quads. I mean, even if I walk around a commercial gym, guys have way better developed quads than they do hamstrings and glutes. Mm-hmm. Knees are way easier to use. <laughs> And just because you can deadlift some, a lot of weight doesn't mean that you can access your hamstrings and your glutes, your, your back, you're hanging onto your back or your lats, or even just your quad. You know what I mean? So yeah, I, to kind of, I don't want to go down that route really, but no, that's fine. We don't have it, to. hips, hips and ankles for sure. Hips and ankles for sure. It, it's a lot of guys are anterior chain dominant just from being tight in through the anterior chain and not being able to access the posterior chain to the full extent. Um, and, and that's just where I stand on it. So, but I'm in the same camp. I think, uh, we don't have to go down that, make you go down that huge rabbit hole. Cause I know you probably spent a lot of your life doing that, but <laughs> I just wanted to pick up, ask you those couple of questions, man, cause I'm going to have, you know, my whole team is going to be listening to this for sure. And, and they're going to be, um, there's a couple. I, of I, I do think that I'm sitting here. I, oh, that's what he asked me. I do think it would be benefit, you know, Ed, Eddie Cohn did a high bar squat when he wasn't peaking, you know, um, I, I definitely think there is, um, validity to, to that, you know, just in terms of lubrication of the knee joint and the synovial fluid, it, it's what the way I tell, the way I tell people or kind of explain people about joints. And, and, and I think we will probably end here. We've been going for almost three hours. So hopefully people will actually listen to this, but, um, is to think of your joints as pistons in a car engine, right? When you buy a sports car, you actually want to dog the engine. You want to break it in, but you want to fully utilize the entire piston because otherwise it calcifies and you lose power. And I kind of explain, I kind of explain that to people with their joints, you, from a health perspective, and look, I understand that powerlifting is not the pinnacle of, of, of health, right? Like no professional sport is the pinnacle of health, but in terms of risk management, what's going to give you the best bang for your buck in terms of health is just getting that joint through as much range of motion as you can. It's going to keep it lubricated. It's going to be, keep it nice and moving. Do I think they need to spend all their time doing it? No. Should they be able to display it? I think, yes, you know, that's my opinion, not coaching powerlifters. I think it would benefit them. It's going to keep their knees healthy. It's going to keep their hips healthy. Um, it's going to keep their ankles healthy, you know, and, and just with our interaction with the ground, most everything is from our feet from the ground up and, and it all kind of starts down there. So I think just the healthier you can keep those joints, the better, but again, does it need to be like that all the fucking time? Like people, you know, somebody I, in my recent hit program, I put just standard Bulgarian split squats in there and people lost their goddamn minds because it wasn't a full knees over toes split squat. It was a knee over above ankle. The shin barely breaks parallel split squat because I wanted it to be hip dominant. 
and people lost their minds because they were like, oh my God, you're, why isn't it, why aren't we doing the ones where your knees go all the way over the toes? Cause like, you don't need to do that all the time. Like it's like thing again, it, it sucks coming to this point because certain points that we were trying to, to just drive home just became dogma. And it's like, that's not the direction I ever wanted to take it because do I think you should be able to display it? Yes. Do I think you need to do it all the time? And that's the only way you train your knees now? No, it's not, you know? So yeah, I, I think it's beneficial, you know, and, and I saw an argument the other day about powerlifters arguing or whether or not the overhead press was beneficial to powerlifters. You know, is the overhead press necessarily going to improve your bench? Who knows? Will it improve the integrity and the structure of your shoulders and hopefully allow you to bench a little longer or do anything with your shoulders a little longer? Yeah, it might. So why isn't it worth just visiting that every now and again? Again, it doesn't need to become the primary focus. And I'll say one of the biggest takeaways. And again, I think this is where some people just got way off track was the Poliquin structural balance numbers were never meant to be a system of mastery. It was meant to be a system of exposure where you look at your numbers and you look at what the weakest link is and the focus becomes bringing up the weakest link, revisiting that again and finding what the next weakest link is if this one catches up. And so you're constantly bringing up whatever the weakest link is because that's where, that's where the most risk is going to be. It, it's not paralyzing people with 30 sets of standards of ratios of lifts. And if you're not accomplishing all of these and they're not perfect, you're injury prone. And you're, like, I just think that's complete horseshit. I think it's complete bullshit. There's plenty of heavy powerlifters who manage to lift just three lifts and stay healthy. And there's plenty of people that have a great tons of range of motion and training all these ranges of motion that aren't healthy. So, you know, injury is a very complicated subject. Pain is a very complicated subject. And I think people simplify it way more. It's like the one thing that shouldn't be so simplified. Um, but I do, I do feel like obviously one of the weakest links of a powerlifter is going to be range of motion because they're just, they're literally exposing themselves to primarily three ranges, which aren't even full capacity of the joints themselves, you know, because the bench is so arched that the pec's not actually really getting full, a full lengthening and full shortening cycle. The deadlift is, it's just, you know, it's primarily just hip. hip. I mean, it's some quads, some hips, people deadlift so many different ways, but you know, in terms of hamstring length, posterior chain length, you're not getting maximal length of the posterior chain. And then if you're not squatting all the way down, you're not getting maximal length of the anterior chain either. So I do think it would be beneficial to visit them, to make dogma of it and expect it to improve you as a power lifter. No, I can't. I can't. I don't have any information personally that says that squatting ass to grass will improve your half squat. But it is interesting to see some powerlifters who are squatting ass to grass. There are some that squat ass to grass. Um, actually, one of my favorite squatters, I'm sure you know who he is, Chris Kraft. You know who Chris Kraft is? Respect the depth. Yeah. Squats all the way down, squatting 600, 700, 800. And he's a big boy. Could, well, could he squat more weight if he squatted only to half? Yeah, probably. But the fact that he can squat 600, 700 pounds and for reps, he's doing like Tom Platt shit where he's squatting 550 for like 20 reps. You know what I mean? Um, I just think that's cool, but, and I'm, I'm sure his knees feel better because of it. He doesn't, he squats every day. He has no issues, you know, 
So yeah, I mean, to kind of end that, that's, that's just kind of where I sit on that. Again, I can't speak with full confidence because I don't, I've not trained powerlifters, so I don't know how much translation there will be. Um, but I'm, in, but I'm interested to see where it goes for you for sure, you know, and, and to kind of see what comes of it because it's, it's good information to have, you know? Yeah. I'll keep you posted for sure. So, all right, man. So I, you know, the way I basically end every podcast is I usually tell people if, if there was one major takeaway from this podcast that, that you wish somebody would just take away from this, it could be, you know, just one thing. Um, and maybe even it's something that you didn't get a mention in the podcast. What would that be? It's a huge question. I think it would be taking way more effort and time into training, training your mind. So through the, the stuff that we talked about very briefly on like, you know, I finding that deep purpose, those mantras, um, exposure to high levels of stress and acute amounts. Yeah. Because I think the biggest missing piece I see in most athletes is that is that they're not, they're so focused on inside the gym and they're lost outside of the gym. So the mind is, and then you talk to athletes that are out there that are doing, whether it's a world record or winning championships, they will all tell you that the amount of time that they spend on their minds and their time outside of the gym is as important, if not more important. So yeah, look into that stuff, either, you know, shameless plug, you know, you can follow me on Instagram, but you know, there's, there's definitely some people out there like Courtney Dewalter on Joe Rogan, et cetera. Like just Sorry, one last thing I'll say is that follow, like, look at these ultra athletes, especially like when they're on the Rogan podcast or whatever, and then talking about their training and what they do with their minds and really believe in it because I think it's we're so big in the exercise science. What of body, the physical, body, body, the physical, the physical, the physical yeah. but it's like you take care of that mind and you get guys running marathons on broken ankles, you know? So I think take your mental training more seriously. Yeah. And, and to kind of piggyback off that there's a lot of big, strong men with weak minds and, 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 and they do crumble, you know, they will eventually crumble and your quality of life. They will crumble. And their, your quality of life is like, you have a lot of buckets in your life. And unless you're an NBA player making millions off of it, like, you know, one, one example we've gone forever, but one example that it's fine for me, but one example I have is that like, is if you have a bad session and it's going to make you treat your girlfriend poorly your mind's not good. Right. No, I'm not saying like we're all human. I get it. But like that shouldn't be a regular thing. And the one thing that I was, I, the analogy that I think makes the most sense that I say to people that they get is that it's easy to look at your five by five on squat from last year to this year and see that you've gained 30 pounds on your total or your number for that's whatever sets and reps and see progress. But I always say is your emotions and your responses to a bad day the same year over year, because if it is, you're not getting better mentally. Right. Like great athletes that I work with, they have a bad session or like Kobe Bryant, he can miss 10 shots in the first half and drop 40 in the second because he's built his mind. So yeah, yeah you got to build that mind. Like I can't believe the amount of people that put so much emphasis and their identity into their sport that doesn't make them money. And then they let it ruin their quality of life outside of life. And I think that's not a complete mind. So train your goddamn minds, please. That's a fantastic message. And I couldn't agree more. So many people are tied to this identity that they've created in fitness that gets them nowhere. Um, yeah, I, I think that what's more important is the impact 
that you have on others around you. And, you know, I'm not perfect um, by any standard, but like you said, just because you're getting better in the gym, if you're not actually getting better as a person at the end of the day, does that, you know, is that really enough? You know, and, and, and I think that ties everything together. It brings it back to the purpose and all these different things. And Aaron, we'll sit down and, and we'll definitely have another conversation because right, right. So we have because, some, um, I'm not, I'm not like, we've never, so people know this, that we haven't had extensive conversations. We've had a few texts that happened like literally yeah. at like 10 AM earlier this week, at like what I messaged you or whatever. Um, and I feel like we could go for 24 hours, but I, obviously people aren't going to listen, want to listen for that. <laughs> wanna, because, uh, we'll make it a sport, a podcasting sport where you have to listen to episodes. <laughs> well, good, I, I, good thing with my ultra endurance, uh, experience. Like, <laughs> but yeah. So if you want to have me back on any time, let me know and we can keep diving into these topics. Man. Nah, we definitely will. Cause unfortunately we didn't get to some of your charity work and stuff that you do. Um, and, and you're very vocal about. I'll just leave it with certain political and uh, yeah, I went viral this week. <laughs> health motivations, you know, right now I think would be good to dive into for real, because I think that people need to, uh, I think people need to hear it. And I think it needs to get, because the truth is when I walk out in the world out here, everyone feels the same way. Everyone's just afraid to talk about it, you know? So, I mean, at least most people, some, there are some crazy people. Out there. <laughs> There's no, like, some crazy people out there, but whatever. Oh, but you're right. 90, and you can have me back on, I don't know, whenever next week, a month from now, we'll talk about it. But while it's still like a big issue in our world, but yeah, 90% of, and I'm that person. And I've always been that person. Like I said, in that video that I posted, um, my whole life, I've always been outspoken and, and, and been a leader in that role. And, um, I can promise you after that post that 99% of my messages were like people in tears or, or crying, calling me, like they thanking me yeah. and it's giving people more courage to speak up. So yeah, we can talk on another time, but yeah, for sure. Um, they can see my viral video. Yeah, on man. It. Just go check them out. Aaron, where can people find you? Yeah. So I guess my main source is just Instagram. So Aaron underscore Edgley, E-D-G-L-E-Y. Uh, and then if people are curious about my training, I don't have much following on Strava, but on Strava, you can just type in A-A-R-O-N, E-D-G-L-E-Y and find me. I literally post every pull-up, every push-up, all my heart rate. I don't hide anything. Uh, all my training is on there. I get so many questions about my training. Yet not a lot of people follow my training, which is weird. So that <laughs> if you if you go into my Instagram profile, my link tree, I've actually tagged my training log. It says training log, and it's Strava. All you got to do is create a free account and log in. You can see all my training that's posted to see what I'm doing every day. Uh, so cool. I, I literally post every single step that I take. So that's pretty awesome. All right, Aaron. Uh, I just want to say thank you so much. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for spending a significant amount of time on your Friday. Um, you know, we'll sit down and we'll, we'll chat again for sure. I learned a lot and I appreciate the message that you brought today. Um, it was refreshing. I know we went on for a while, but it was a refreshing conversation uh, where we got a little bit more into things that I have not really discussed too much with anybody on this podcast. So I do want to say I appreciate it. And again, guys, you can find him on Instagram. Um, and that's Aaron Edgley, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you.